Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contry, and today my guest is Lewis Lovehog, better known as Linkara. He reviews comic books online in the Atop the Fourth Wall video series, and he's also known for the history of Power Rangers. Linkara, welcome. Uh, I descend from on high to go to your podcast. <laughs> Behold the holy Power Rangers reviewer. <laughs> you, you know, Power Rangers, before we get into everything else, what a banner year for you, professionally, right? Yeah. You have... Power, Power Rangers has a movie. Who thought we'd have another Power Rangers movie ever again? Right in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. You have all the, you know, the, all the Marvel and DC movies. We're getting like 12 a year, it seems like. <laughs> this is like the peak of your existence. Indeedykins. Now we'll, we'll probably get into so, to one of the problems that uh, had occurred around the time of the Power uh, of the Power Rangers movie, but uh, yeah, it's been pretty good for me, especially because I've been uh, redoing history of Power Rangers, uh, re-recording the original stuff, and putting them up on YouTube because the old videos were done when Blip was around, and so I let clips last just a little too long. Yeah, was there a rule now where like the video clip can't be more than like eight seconds or so, or else it'll go into the system and get flagged? The the for the, good, the good way of doing it is about fifteen seconds is is what I found of video footage. Probably no more than ten seconds of of just clean audio. But yeah, fifteen seconds per clip is usually a good good cutoff point. Though I try to keep it around ten. I think it's good though that there's like guidelines now. Like you know what. YouTube is considering fair use for their system. Before, it was sort of like random where you didn't know what you can get away with. Obviously, on Blip, you can get away with, with clear copyright murder if you wanted to. Mm. But I, I'm glad that YouTube has evolved to that point where they understand there is a need to show video clips of shows or movies that you're talking about, where it's not just, okay, five seconds, you're gone. At least you kind of get a feeling, okay, 15 seconds is fairly reasonable. You know, that's that's okay. And then I guess, obviously, you can cut back to a still image or something else before cutting back to 15 more seconds. So, exactly. so, I, I, so it's not... It's not it's not too bad. It's not like when they first started co- coming down more in copyright where, you know, oh, he's going to strike for no reason. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, honestly, the more problems I've had recently with it is that uh, content ID will automatically, I will I will make a cut in the video so that it's like 15, so that it is, you know, just the 10 to 15 second cutoff. But because I cut, because, uh, because some, you know, video footage lasts, you know, they'll, they'll stay on a shot for like a minute or something like that. And if I cut to the same scene, just like, you know, 30, 30, 45 seconds later, it, the content ID uh, automatic system thinks it's still continuing the same scene, which is kind of a pain, which is what happened most recently when I've had to re-upload them again, just cutting to a different shot. So, so the system's actually smart. The AI actually knows that, okay, this Joker cut away and then he came back. You know, no, it's, it's, probably... not, it's not even, that, that, it's not even <laughs> that it's smart. It's kind of dumb because then it's not continuous footage. Oh, I see what you're saying. So maybe it's in the system trying to play devil's advocate where they don't think a person can get away with uploading a movie and every 15 seconds they cut to one second of a still then continue on where they left off. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's their way around maybe, it. Yeah, maybe you're but right. <laughs> something like that. They, they thought about this. I, I think okay. overall. I, I, I get around it when it happens. I just, like I said, I just, put a, I just uh, cut to a different shot, try to make it so it doesn't look continuous, and then if I can cut back again if I really need to, which I probably don't at that point. Well, what I think is interesting about your YouTube career is that you came to YouTube relatively late. I had to almost drag you kicking and screaming. I remember having a conversation with you. Like, you should be uploading to YouTube. Because for years and years, uh, and I was uh, doing that for a while, too, where, where, where Blip was my primary sort of video site or embed for other sites. In your case, uh, that got glasses slash channel awesome, mm-hmm. where we sort of were... 
not late to YouTube because we did upload, but in terms of it being our primary outlet for entertainment, we were sort of late bloomers. Maybe you could talk about that sort of process and transition. Well, when I, when I came in, it was around the time of Rever's dying days. And the uh, and while I did upload my stuff to YouTube because nobody gives a crap about comic books, <laughs> uh, Some when do. I when I started <laughs> upload I started uploading to YouTube, but it was 2008 or so. It was when monetization was not a huge thing, uh, and they had the 10 minute video uh, cut off at the time, so it was much more difficult. For, so I had to actually physically, you know, not physically, I had to cut. Uh, uh, the episodes into multiple parts because my stuff would be like, you know, 10 to 20 minutes long. I was the same way. Yeah. Yep. And so uh, when Blip started becoming more of a thing around the same time as Rever was dying and not paying anybody, it was, it was, it just made more natural sense to get on Blip and, you know, ride that train. And it worked out pretty well for me. I, I think, I guess it depended on the person because obviously at the time, uh, we can get into that guy glasses dot com a little bit for a website like that where it was either a choice of our content either cannot be monetized on YouTube because they weren't it was hard to get monetized for the first six seven years of YouTube until probably two thousand and thirteen when they let more people get monetized more easily as, as a g- generic Google AdSense partner but also because of the copyright constraints of YouTube where it seemed like Blip was the way to go. Like, if you wanted to make even a little bit of money uh, creating uh, which, what you would call long-form content, that's what that's what it was. So I was the same way, way where for, i say, a good two, two and a half years, you know, riding the Blip gravy train where I wasn't uploading my stuff right away to YouTube. Mm. But actually, that didn't hurt your career, but it definitely hurt mine because I think at the time it would have been better to get that content out there even if I wasn't making the amount of money just to pick up momentum and get subscribers and get the views i hear you um you know so i guess it's 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 it's, it's sort of a trade-off because blip was giving out insane cpms oh yeah almost <laughs> uh, i remember the highlight being blip was gone by what end of 2014 but i think the highlight was like december of 2013 something like that where the cpms or cost per thousand for those out there or how much money you make on a thousand views was something like 20 to 30 dollars it was astronomical it never got that high for me. I think the highest I ever got was like fifteen or sixteen. But the av- but since the average for me was about seven to ten, that was still pretty damn impressive. And of course, there are there's the points of which we which pretty much are the content creators sweeps, which is usually December. Uh, sure, because that's, that's when that's, that's when the marketing dollars have to be used up by exactly. yeah, usually in the cycle. But I, when I was thinking about that, I was like, wow, I'm making some money doing this. But um, I, and I still was posting stuff on YouTube. It was just, it was just later on. But do you, th- do you consider that the fact that Blip was, was giving out that much money to creators, was that part of the reasons, part of the engine that made that guy with glasses.com a success early on, do you feel? A bit, yes. Uh, because in my, in my case, I was able to quit my job at Barnes & Noble, and I'm one of the rare people that actually likes working at retail, but I was making so much... <laughs> I know. I was one of the few... But, but, but I was able to make enough money just doing my videos so much more than than working the eight or nine dollar an hour job there that is like it made so much more sense to just go and do my videos full time and i could devote more time to it and try to polish it more whether or not that's actually uh, i've actually been successful is up to the viewer although (laughs) although of course there's up to it's up to me i look at my old stuff and i'm just like all i could see are the flaws like man i could have cleaned up the audio more this this could have been edited more tightly yada 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 
Sure. So you started uh, doing the video reviews in 2008, but you mentioned before we started recording that you were actually were, you did written comic book reviews before that. Yep, back in caveman times before YouTube, uh, the only way to talk about movies and TV shows and whatnot in long-form content was just by very long uh, essays and articles and synopses. So I was really a big fan of websites like The Agony Booth and Jabutu's Movie Reviews and B-Movie Planet. Uh, and eventually, around 2007 or so, I was like, you know... I bet I could do this, but with comic books, because I'm I'm a I'm a comic fan. I'm not the hugest comic fan in the world, uh, and I can talk more about that at uh, a bit later. Uh, but I know enough about comics that I bet I could, you know, have some fun with this and do this uh, uh, thing. Actually, I say I wasn't the hugest comic fan. That was back. I was thinking. I'm thinking more like 2002 me. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, I could do comic books with this, and so I put up an article. I put up a review of Youngblood number one because I realized that I was inexperienced with this, and I wanted to do an easy target. And Youngblood is the easiest of easy targets when it comes to crappy comics. Was that Rob Liefeld? Rob Liefeld, yep. Liefeld, yep. yeah. Um, we talk about him on the podcast every once in a while because you can't. What was it? You can't draw feet. That's one of the things. can't draw feet. Loves to <laughs> loves to draw uh, sixty or seventy teeth on a person that are always gritting. <laughs> And pouches. And that, pouches. That's what... Always the pouches. <laughs> that's interesting. We'll get, yeah, we'll get back to that saying that you, a comic book reviewer, is not a huge comic book fan, or at least wasn't at some point. That's very, very interesting. So when you started doing the videos, did you have any experience with video editing or or, or at all? Like, for example, I did some short films before YouTube. I'd done a, a feature-length film in college. Did you come from any background like that, or you just said, screw it, I'm going to wing it, and let's, let's see what happens? Only the tiniest bit of video editing experience. I did a bit of film class in uh, school back when, and, and it was still tape-based and digital and digital video, so at least I was editing that way and not like the physical way of actually cutting together film. But uh, I had produced a short film for that class, which... which as a precursor to the, to these days, I played every single character in it, just cutting and wearing different clothes. <laughs> That's uh, sort of the, the the channel awesome motif. If oh, you will, of course. Right? <laughs> he... Who has who has cast around them? Who has actual people? To who play has roles? friends? <laughs> <laughs> nowadays, I, nowadays I actually try to cast other people in it, uh, but otherwise. The uh, I had that experience behind me. I was an avid viewer of anime music videos, so I tried to make like one or two, one to set uh, Aqua's Cartoon Heroes and one using the Rimmer song from Red Dwarf. And But that was pretty much my... Oh, oh yeah, there was one thing. I In 2005, I did make a fan Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. And that oh, was wow. Probably, and that was probably the most complicated project I ever made. And it was also not very good because I didn't have any audio record, any proper audio recording equipment. And basically, most of my knowledge of how to put together something like this was the uh, MST3K scrapbook and the making of MST3K videos, which which detailed. Oh, we do, for for the theater segments, we just use chroma key. And so I learned. Oh, this copy of Adobe Premiere Elements, like 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 you know one of the earliest earliest versions of it has a has a. Uh, uh, it has a chroma key option. I can I can do this now, and so I rent so I I uh, rented out my school my school auditorium, which has a screen that can come down, and I I made it bright white, and I made theater sets, and I put that together, and it's not very good. I think some fan circles uh, have a bootleg copy of it because back then I also distributed it to like ten or twelve people, burning it myself with a crappy CD labeler that said like MST3K <laughs> Season Eleven. 
Well, and now, it's funny because now that's back. I, I saw part of the first episode. What is it about MST3K you think that draws sort of – it's sort of like a, a meeting place, a gathering place for all sorts of geek culture, whether it's comic books, sci-fi. It, all, it seems like, a, like sort of like a – we all feel safe there with MST3K. It almost seems like you, we can all just sort of be like, okay, this is all, all – we're all connected through that. A few things. One of the big ones, I think, is the esoteric humor. Uh, especially making a lot of obscure references to things that that the audience will recognize. And let's face it, geeks have this tendency to quote shit to each other. Sure. I just, oh no, I just swore openly on the podcast. Ah. That, that's you're allowed to. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no yeah, way. Yeah, but I, I maintain my image of 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 PG thirteen content for my show. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? You, you can't uh, drop it. Uh, the reason why I don't swear that off. Well, I, I do use the swears like hell, damn, and ass. But but any of the more extreme sw- swears, any other more colorful four letter words, I keep it. Uh, uh, off mostly because uh, back in the days when the AVGN and Nostalgia Critic were were, were uh, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily starting out, but like their first few years, uh, my family saw it and they were like, "I bet you can do this without. I could bet you can be funny without needing to swear as often." And I'm like, oh, "Okay." And now it's just become a thing now where I could, where my videos can be viewed uh, viewed by people. I can't speak English anymore. Uh, where it can be viewed by people n- without needing to worry about the language getting too extreme. Sure. And um, I'll, I'll just say this. I mean, I watched MSC3K when it first came out in Comedy Central. Kind of, I kind of got away from it and went to sci-fi. I've been following the Rift Track stuff a little bit. I've seen a few of the things in the theater. Mm-hmm. Good fun. I've seen it live at Comic-Con. I, I messaged uh, Bill Corbett. It was nice of him to get back to me. When I asked about, you know, basically, how do you time code things you're riffing on? Because there was a time, if you're not aware, most of the audience probably is because it was very short-lived, only six episodes. Uh, I did a project called Super Riff Brothers, where we did like a sort of a riff uh, style, riff track style on video game cutscenes and video game sort of like uh, movies. And I did it with uh, Pro Jared and Breno Floss. And we did it live at uh, MAGFest, what was that, 2004? 14, the last MAGFest I went to, I believe. We did it there. It was a packed house. The tech, there was tech problems, but people enjoyed it. And it's, uh, it's interesting to do that, especially with the team. It's very interesting. I'll probably uh, talk about it more in, in depth at some point. The dynamic of coming up with riffs with a group and deciding you know, what makes it, what doesn't, what, what thematically are we going for joke-wise. It's not as simple as I think what people would, would think on the surface mm. until you actually get into it. Uh, not just in the difficulty of actually writing a consistent amount of jokes uh, for something that you're watching, but but your show atop the fourth wall, you're basically semi riffing like MSC3K, but in comic book form, which I think is very interesting. And you were pretty much the first person I knew that was doing that. I'm not even sure there's anyone else even out there. Not that I've looked. Oh, there's there's other comic reviewers out there. Uh, at the very least, uh, when I got started on that guy with the glasses. Uh, there was another comic book reviewer. He just hadn't transitioned into video yet. So I always try to try to point out the fact that I am actually the second comic book reviewer of the site. Uh, that would be the Last Angry Geek, who okay. does who does uh, his show, Comic Book Issues. And yeah, he was technically first. But then there are other comic reviewers on YouTube. I have not watched a whole bunch of them, but I know they exist. I've always wanted to try to. Uh, uh, sit down and watch more more of them but of course there's only so much time in the day and i try to follow all of my other compatriots on the site so that's already difficult enough as it is oh sure uh, but i would say you, you were probably a pioneer in terms of video form and then i'm not sure i'm, I'm sure others have come along and, and have done it and probably are in different places where you're at 
And uh, I don't know. If you watch it, maybe you'll pick up on some stuff you want to include, or maybe it's it's not worth it for what you're doing. You know, it's always one of those things that, in terms of video production, at least for me, where you do want to watch what other people are doing, but you don't want to watch it religiously because you don't want to either gleam off entire styles uh, or jokes, or you don't want to get too close to what you don't. At least for me, you don't want it to sort of inhabit your mind too much. Mm. Try to keep what you're doing as fresh as possible. I'm not sure if that's something that you're concerned about, whether or not you want to watch other comic book reviewers in video form or not. In my mind, I take the attitude of of this way. If I see someone else's work, I can either make a reference to them, which is you know, which you know, uh, it, it, there's an MST3K mantra as part of that. Not not the same mantra. Their the regular mantra is just repeat yourself. It's just a show. I should really just relax. But during the making of MST3K, one thing that Mike Nelson said, uh, I think it was Mike Nelson, said was. Uh, uh, we never walk into a joke assuming everyone will get this. We walk into it saying the right people will get this. And I like that kind of attitude. I can make references to other uh, uh, reviewers, other people's works, and and the right people will get it. Other people might not get it, but hey, there's hopefully another hundred or so jokes that people will get, and they'll be and, and they will find that funny, even if they don't find this particular thing funny. So you go by the sort of uh, notion of make the material for myself almost first still not necessarily just for myself although of course i i go by what i think is funny versus what i what i think other people me- might necessarily find funny well that's what i mean though so if you find it funny you you in a way are creating it for yourself you're staying true to what you think your sense of humor is and not abandoning that uh, you know i mean i guess it's a, it's a fine line because um, you could potentially go towards a different style of humor that might be quote unquote more mainstream, but it may not be true to what your sensibilities are. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, I think as a content creator, that's always the struggle. It's like, okay, do I do what I know could be more popular versus what I think my core audience wants, what I am competent and what I know I would enjoy at least, hmm. uh, enjoy doing. Uh, and I, th- and I think that's something that a lot of p- people struggle with comedians, writers in general, you know, it's not necessarily selling out. To, to cater to, to a mainstream audience because you, you got to eat right you got to make yeah. you got to make cash but you know at the same time though are you going to enjoy what you're doing are you going to be able to look in the mirror and say okay i created something that i know that i really wanted to do artistically yeah. at the same time people are you know consuming it as entertainment at the same time so let's let's talk about a little about the experience being on um which to me was sort of an unprecedented time for video creation uh, you know, that guy with the glasses, Channel Awesome. You're talking about a ragtag group of, of content creators coming together to focus on a singular site and try to bolster it up. Uh, we're talking, uh, you know, what, 2009 to, you know, the hate of this site a few years later. Um, so like a good, like, five-year period of, like, this is the site where a lot of people are trying to get in on, trying to be a part of. You have your yearly movies. What was that like in terms of seeing that development and growth of a site like that? It was magical. I loved it. I, I, I loved being a part of it. I, lo- I remember getting invited to the first-year brawl, uh, the first-year anniversary special, where it was just basically after the Nostalgia Critic and Angry Video Game Nerd uh, feud, they decided to, uh, for the one-year anniversary of the site, they'd make one huge brawl where they'd bring in, like, 20 of the site's producers and we'd all just start, start punching each other with the same sound effect and we'd do a <laughs> bunch of crossovers. And there'd been crossovers before, but they were very rare at that point. It was, and so... Suddenly, for the anniversary, we get to have everyone suddenly interacting with each other and, you know, cameoing other people's videos. And some, and, and basically, if we want to think about this in comic book terms, this was the big crossover event 
where everyone is brought together, does a, does a thing, and there are tie-ins, which in this case are the crossovers that we have. Like we we, we were reserving some videos just for this special occasion that we would only t- we would talk about them because they encompass something that we both did. Uh, and back then there was also this, you know, not not a huge fear, but still a thing of like uh, of the concept of reviewer dibs. We're like, well, this person's already made this video, so what can I really add to this uh, uh, experience? And of course, we quickly discovered no, that's there's no point in in really thinking of reviewer dibs because we all have our own opinions and our own jokes, and we can do our own thing with it. Uh, but that was a thing that was a bit of a mindset that we had at the time. Now that's funny about about the fight. I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, now the now uh, over time we just kept getting bigger and bigger with it, and it was so much fun doing that and thinking and and especially for the anniversary movies thinking wow what are we gonna do next year to top this or what are we gonna do next year that's gonna uh, advance the weird stories we've kind of created with this uh, what are fans reactions gonna be this time what kind of crosses over we crossovers are we going to do who's going to get invited this time and some people were staples and some people were were not getting invited which you know felt really unfair to them and uh uh you know just kind of you know that kind of thing which which it's just so much damn fun <laughs> what was that sort of the i guess the pros and cons of, of that having these highlight videos what is you had three of them correct you had uh, kick Asia, the original fight. What the last one was to boldly flee, and what was the other one? Uh, there was uh, the brawl, which was the first year. Kick Asia, the second year. Suburban Knights was the third year, and to boldly flee for the fourth one. And technically, there was a fifth anniversary one, which is an anthology uh, where everyone filmed their own things. I think it was called the Uncanny Valley. I was invited to participate in that one, but I was working on my first DVD at the time, so I couldn't make time to work on that. So, so when the first fight video happens, and that's honestly how I discovered the site, I was like, you know, obviously looking into, oh, that uh, Angry Video Game Nerd, everyone was following him around that time. And then uh, Doug had the, the guy with glasses had the, the videos back and forth where they feud with each other. They had this big fight. And then I see all these other people. I'm like, oh, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was brilliant marketing in a way because here you have an introduction through these larger-than-life characters to a bunch of other reviewers and, car- and personalities that you can check out their videos. Mm. You know, I can say, like, oh, who's this, who's this guy named Spoonie? I'll check out his videos. Who's this Linkara guy? I'll check him out. Exactly. You know, it, was, it, was just, it was just enough of personality you know, balancing, you know, 20 characters in a video enough to at least check out at least a handful of them at a time and be like, okay, this is what's going on. But I can see that uh, over time, how trying to top the previous years, how that probably seemed difficult from a narrative standpoint. And yes, as you alluded to, there probably was some difficulty in terms of, okay, who gets on board this year and who's left out? That that probably seemed like uh, uh, something a little bit dicey because I, I, could, I could picture it if you're posting regularly on that site that being in the anniversary video was sort of like, wow, I made it. I got it, I got it to be invited to this. Yep, there was a bit of that mindset, and and even the producers who were invited felt uh, were were uh, feeling like like at at times because of course we all love doing this. Uh, we were feeling at times like, well, you know, it's great to be invited, it's great to come along, but you know, one of the big advantages of doing the anniversary special was it got a lot more attention on us, and that's a great thing for newcomers. But let's face it, there comes a point where where you know, while there while there are new people all filtering in, chances are most of the time we're going to have the same audience, and 
already watching it. So it's like, well, we're marketing to uh, ourselves to people who already know who the hell we are. Why don't you know? I'd be happy. Some of us were saying, well, I'd be happy to bow out if you can invite this other person or so, or like you know, get some other attention for it. Because at this point, I'm not getting any benefit of it for it beyond being in it, which you know, again, is fun. We want to do them, but we also want to help our fellow producers out here. Sure, and I can imagine there's probably also a, a notion of okay, I'm going to be spending what a week or two of my time filming this, yeah. but maybe I don't have a hu- but maybe I don't have a huge amount to actually do. Yeah, you want to you want to talk uh, behind the scenes in the issues there. That was that was a a bit of a growing issue when we did the uh, did the brawl. Uh, originally, they had said we're gonna we are going to take the video the crossover videos because we uh, flew you guys out here. It took it took us a lot of it cost a lot of money to do so. But in the end, they decided to let us keep them, and that was and and that was great. Well, I was, I'm sorry when you say we, you meant Channel Awesome was going to retain the rights to crossover videos, not for, the rights. The Basically, instead of us uploading the video the crossover videos to our own channels, they would upload it to their channels, and they would get the revenue from them as a way to recoup the cost of, of flying everyone out. Yes, and they said okay. and they decided again, and they had originally said they were going to do that. Then they decided now nah, we're actually not going to do that. That wasn't that bad this time around. Then we did Kickassia. And Kickassia, they asked us to, uh, uh, they asked for the crossover videos, and we were okay with that at the time. And it ca- and and we were okay with that up until to boldly flee, because by that point, some of us had started doing this as our careers, uh, or they had other jobs outside of doing videos that they were taking a very good chunk of time away from, like like seven or eight days away from um, work where they could be get, making money or making videos that would make them money or promote them. And suddenly we're doing a bunch, and suddenly we have a bunch of crossovers. And actually, here's a thing that's especially kind of frustrating because the Boldy Flea. There was there was a lot of complications that happened behind the scenes there, and we all and okay. I, I, the thing is, I'm trying not to, to ramble too much about this, so I'm no, not, no, so, no. This so is so interesting. I'm trying to think of like the best way of, of addressing this. Okay, Tiboldi Flea was an exhausting shoot, and if you watch and if you notice the fact that it's a three and a half hour movie, more like a mini series, you understand why it was such an exhausting shoot because we had so much we were trying to get done. So, yeah, when I fir- when I first saw that, I was like, "How long is this going to be? This is over three hours." I was like, I was like shocked that it was that long. I was absolutely shocked. It was, and since it was intended to be the last major anniversary special, they wanted to make it big, and it was going to be the end of the nostalgia critic. So, of course, make it as huge as possible. Which is why I say view it more as a miniseries than a single movie, especially because you know so many subplots and stuff going on throughout it. Now. We had, you know, we had been doing the anniversary specials for a few years now. We were pretty much okay with 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 giving away our crossovers, but we had thought by the time Tobolly Flea rolled around, you know, maybe we'll just, you know, do less crossovers this time around because it's going to be really exhausting. It's going to take up a lot of time. A lot of us aren't ready yet with with the scripts we wanted to do. But then we were told. Uh, uh, during the planning meeting, because of course, you know, when everyone is there, we have a big planning meeting, we say, okay, here's the schedule for how we're going to do things. They encouraged us to make crossovers because they specifically said to us, uh, this was a really expensive thing, so if you guys could make some crossovers, we'd really appreciate it. So I was like, uh... <laughs> now it's like homework, right? It's like I can't just go and do this job. I got to now on the side shoot these other videos. Exactly, I gotta, like, <laughs> and we had, we ended up doing like majorly long shooting hours for this. Uh, like 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 one or two days were like seventeen hour days, and not of all the time was used that effectively because because there were times where like some people were there for for several hours into the evening where we would be necessary for one shot 
and then we could go home. But because it was taking so long for us, it wasn't using us efficiently, and people were getting exhausted and tired and cranky, and understandably so, because these were very, very long working hours. And How long How long was that shoot? Was that like a three-week shoot? That, that, was, not, shoot? that was one week. You did that all – you had a three-and-a-half-hour movie in one week. Yep. And, again, that's why uh, we were pulling very long hours, and especially with the, the one that I recall specifically was the big 17-hour day. Because not only were we there until, like, midnight or 1 a.m., we were expected then to wake up at 6 a.m. the next day to film some more stuff. And that that's a real movie shoot. <laughs> it is, and it is a real movie shoot, but, the, but, but it was the most intensive we had ever done before. And they were still expecting us to do crossovers. Oh, so I see. So then at that point, it's like, oh, my God, you're dragging yourself out to then do these other videos at that point. So, so that was so that was the what the fall of 2012. I want to say uh, not fall, uh, April. We always filmed around April to May because uh, that's when the actual site anniversary was. And as the projects became bigger, we didn't realize just how long it would take to edit them or edit a full movie, which is what happened. Why Tabaldi Flea ended up being pushed into, I believe, the, fir- the first teaser for it was summer-ish, and then it, like, I think it went into September. Okay, that's why I was thinking of fall in my head. I remember it was released, like, what was it, like, released, like once a week for, like, ten weeks or something like that? Or yep. it, it, was, it was something like that. When I did the Atop the Fourth Wall movie, I was hoping, eh, I could get this out by July or whatever. Came out in November. <laughs> yeah, you always want a big project, especially the first time you're doing, you always want to sort of be like, yeah, add a few more months just to be safe, right? Yeah. Because things happen. But uh, so at that point in 2012, how many people at Channel Awesome were doing videos full time? Besides Doug, was there that many? Was Brad Cinema Snob doing it full time? Were you doing it full time yet? Oh, definitely. I was. I, both Brad and I were definitely doing it full time. I always forget to ask sometimes among my fellow creators which of them are actually doing it full time, which ones are not, uh, because unfortunately, I I got in. Ve- I was very lucky when I got into it. I was there during the zeitgeist of uh, of hyperbolic reviewers. You know, angry the angry screaming reviewer kind of kind of shtick. Uh, sure. I, I feel incredibly lucky that I'm one of the ones who has stuck around for as long as I have. And because I got on when I did, I was able to get a fan base fairly quickly and cultivate it and grow it over time. I'm still flabbergasted when I hear people say, I've been watching you since you know 2009 or 2010. I'm like, like I have almost been doing this for 10 years now. That'll be, my, that'll be next year. So the fact that I have managed to keep people for that long and keep them entertained for that long is simply astounding to me. Now, Brad, Brad uh, started uh, before me, and he started out on YouTube, but he ran into copyright issues uh, uh, very quickly. And in his case, it wasn't like Content ID automatically flagging stuff. It was actual like video distributors and whatnot, because he focused on uh, uh, cult movies, uh, porn, and, yeah, and, and you know, stuff that, would, that, that you know, normally wouldn't get uploaded to YouTube anyway for Content ID. No, no, it was actual people, like, saying, how dare you besmirch the good name of Nail Gun Massacre. <laughs> Some, stuff that you would think would fly under the radar, you yeah. would hope, right? <laughs> it's like, who cares? So we're talking about, I, I guess, I'm trying to picture it, because I remember when I used to post some stuff to that guy with the glasses in the community settings, how many people, and I guess you could say there were tiers to the level of content creator based upon the people that did it full-time, 
stuff that was featured more. But you're talking out of you know probably a few dozen content creators. How many are, you think are still producing regularly today besides yourself? Is it like about 10, 12? Like how many can you say like really took off and kept up with it? Uh, it, it depends on the year date we start at because of course some producers started later because they were inspired by us. Other people have you know if we if we go by just the brawl, uh, thinking off the top of my head, I'd say at least half of them. Okay. Uh, some some producers I can think of of do not regularly produce the content, or if they do produce content, it's not the same kind of content. Uh, for example. Uh, Benzai was in was in uh, three of the anniversary specials, including the brawl, and uh, he still does content, but he's shifted his focus and he and he, and, uh, uh, and his stuff now is completely in French because he's got he's a French content producer, uh, but he gets more views doing it in French than he did doing it in English. Sure. Uh, then there's uh, Little Miss Gamer I can think of. She stopped doing videos, and that was sad because she was really good. Uh, Let's see, trying to think of uh, other specific ones. Let me, let me think of one who's still doing content. Mars Girl still doing content. She does podcasts. She does review videos, and I think she's trying. She's she's. I think she still struggles with with doing it full time, but she tries to at the very least. And you know, of course, always try to throw some support her way. Doug, of course, is still doing content. Uh, Bennett the Sage is still doing content. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling here because they're like there are so many of them. Oh, sure. <laughs> obviously, angry, obviously, angry Joe does his does his. Oh yeah, angry Joe. I am and... so damn happy Joe has been doing doing so well. I recall uh, back in the day him sending out messages on the that guy with the glasses forum saying like, "Hey man, I'm trying to you know start getting my videos done. Could you look at this video?" And and it was like a review of a Mortal Kombat. Uh, game and he like can you give some feedback to me and right away I noticed that that Joe was in while well, I don't think the video was that great the guy had so much charisma to spare so much of a screen presence I knew he would do so fantastically and I am so damn happy that he has done so well and has gone so far do you think that's that's what really allowed some of you uh, creators to break out is it not just charisma but also there's going to be some talent involved. Uh, but also, I guess, the hard work to keep it going, even when you think that you're at a low point or it may not seem like it's it's being fruitful at that moment. So, like, for example, like maybe other content creators quit too early before their time pr- pretty much hit. Like, is there, you think there's like a magical formula to all this in the terms formula, of these people made it? The formula is luck, talent, determination, and opportunity. And I cannot emphasize enough the luck part of it. And it's a really sad thing to admit that, but but I was incredibly lucky to get onto that guy with the glasses when I did, when there was a growing fan base who was eager for content and especially uh, uh, continual content. And that's then that's where the determination, hard working part goes in. It's one thing to get people to watch a video a million times. You know, viral videos happen all the time. It's another thing to keep them there week after week uh, uh, and make them want to keep watching your stuff and coming back. So getting on a regular schedule, uh, continually producing new material for them to consume and making sure that you're constantly striving to improve and do things better because over time uh, people's standards will rise up higher and they will demand more of you. So, so you saw the luck of getting onto a site that people were flocking to for other content creators, and then you have obviously 
the will to make you know weekly or regular content, which is very difficult mm. uh, if people don't understand what what that's like, especially with what you've been doing, what weekly content for like you know a decade almost. Yep. You know, so uh, which is insane. Uh, even if it's a regular job, that's it's scripted content is difficult to come up with off the top of your head. Besides shooting and editing it. Oh yeah. So that I give you. So that I give you personal kudos. Thanks, uh, even if I could, even if I could find a format that I would like to do weekly scripted content, I'm not sure if I could actually do it. You know, in terms of not getting uh, some sort of writer's block every other month. You know, like so that's that's what happened to uh, when James was doing uh, his ABGN videos when they were uh, for like what was it two years just about every other week he was putting those out. I don't know how he did that. I don't think he knows how he did that either. He just went into a zone and pumped those out doing two AVGN videos a month. And, you know, that's just an insane sort of output to do scripted content. Well, like that. So, it, it, it helps have a few, uh, a few factors help one. He didn't have, he didn't have a family to take care of back then. Okay. And, yeah, that's true. And two, uh, uh, no. So in my case, no social life. <laughs> I've gotten oh, better. Well, come at, on. I've gotten better you, you, at that, you... <laughs> but back then, back then, no social life whatsoever. I did not go out with friends. I did not do anything. I st- I stayed at my home either when I was living with my parents or at my apartment, and just and and it was it's just basically my entire life. Nowadays, I have friends that I hang out with, go to movies, and 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 just and do stuff with. Although that then cuts into video making time. And so is that really is that really the sacrifice then? It's like do you do you want a decent social life and a, a decent uh, you know normal normalcy and, and not be killed with stress, or do you want to be successful creating video content on YouTube and on like Channel Awesome? Is that is that what you're getting? At? That's why that's why I said one of them was, was the hardworking one. <laughs> and and but but I, I, you don't necessarily have to do that because I know Brad Jones, the man's a video making machine. He still has a very active social life and manages to and manages to still pump out not only weekly videos. At the time of this recording, he just celebrated his 400th Cinema Snob review by releasing 10 new episodes at once that he's been writing and working on for a while. That is insane, not just for 400 episodes, but 10 at once Yeah, uh, to build it up. So, wow, that leads into my next sort of point. When do you guys get tired of this? I mean, or will you get tired of this? Well, this actually leads into something I was going to talk about uh, with that last point. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, burning out or getting tired of this or, or, or fatigue of this kind of, uh, kind of kind. Uh, one way I do it is always varying up the content. I have... This method by which uh, when I review comic books, it's an alternating system. It goes like DC, indie, Marvel, indie, DC, indie, etc. With exceptions made for like multi-part episodes or uh, if there's like a special occasion kind of a thing. Like, oh, this is like the anniversary of Star Wars or something. I should do a special thing for that. Uh, or, or like uh, Christmas comics or something like that. I, I, don't, I can't follow the formula if I'm, if I'm going to be, you know, taking advantage of a special occasion kind of a deal. Uh and I get tired. I mean, right now, again, at the time of this recording, I just finished up Event Comics Month, where I don't, where I think only one of the videos came out on time. Uh, videos are supposed to come out at 10 a.m. on Monday. They're longer videos, and I've had other stuff going on in my life that's taken time away from working on them as quickly as I would want to. As a result, uh, the episodes, I, I pull all-nighters just to get them out, and... Only just today did I get the episode that was supposed to come out yesterday. So I'm looking forward to coming, going back to doing like just like single issues for a bit, because if I have to review something longer, it takes that much more work to put it out, mostly because the videos end up being longer. 
So do you feel a pressure to keep on the schedule or this is sort of just, this is what you do. This is what the fans expect after almost 10 years where the content has to be this regular. It has to be a certain quality and I just have to grind it. This is basically the life that I chose. This is, is that basically how you look at it? This is self-imposed, and I can tell you that because anytime I announce an episode delay, I get a bunch of responses from my wonderful fan base saying, it is okay, we know how this is stressful and hard work, uh, we appreciate it, we're just happy that we're going to get it at some point. And, I, and it's self-imposed for me because it is so easy for me to slip into laziness and say, uh, so if I, if I say, well, it's, it, it's not going to come out at this point, then it's so easy for me to just say, well, then I don't have to worry about this. I mean, it's already late. Uh, it's easy to fall into the mindset where I don't have to, where I feel like I don't have to do it. And if I, and I need to exercise self-control and say, no, this needs to go out at this time or else it's not going to come out. So you're talking about just a very good work ethic. You're treating this as a nine to five or, you know, six to, to eight job where, this is what I have to do to get to get paid. I got to eat. People are expecting it. So it's almost like you have a, a um, nebulous boss out there that's looking over your shoulder to make sure you do the work. But it's but you said it's self, it's self-imposed. Yep. Though. You just have the you have the discipline to just do this every day, 7 days a week almost. Yep. So what happens when you go on a vacation? Do you have to have the video done beforehand? Um, do your fans allow you to take a week off every now and then? Uh, they, they've told me before I should. Vaca- what is this <laughs> vacation you speak of? I have to, in, in, the, in the nine years I've done this, I have taken one vacation. And I don't honestly know if I even consider it a vacation. I went to Washington, D.C. to visit my, fia- my, uh, my girlfriend at the time. And, you know, we went, we went to, like, the Smithsonian, and we walked around D.C., and I met a bunch of her friends. That was basically a weekend. And in that case, it was a matter of I got to get the video done with early. And that's really the thing what happens with conventions. Uh, if, I, if I need to, I can rush out the video within a three-day time period, write the script, edit it, and get all that, and, and film it and do all that stuff in a two- to three-day period. Or in this case of, of what happened uh, uh, with this most recent video, I did it all in one day because I had a convention that I had that, that took away a bunch of my time, and so I focused on that instead. That's what I'm hearing more and more from content creators. Where before it was like, yeah, it's cool to go to conventions. Now more and more, it's like, well, it's kind of a drag in terms of you know you're you're away from your job and your and sort of your regular life. Not that not that it's uh it's it's not that it's um. You know they're not they're not appreciative of being asked to a convention, but in terms of I guess the mode you get into in terms of the regular schedule, to some content creators it can be a drag. I mean it's it's happened to me before. I'm not going to lie. Um, in terms of schedule, especially if you get into that sort of weird groove where you know there's quote unquote convention season where you're doing say four conventions in seven weeks, for yep. example. Then all of a sudden it's like okay now this is bad. Now it's like I don't have the energy now to come back and even do the work mm. you know that I was doing before from the travel. But you, but you sort of uh, thrived and I, again I take my hat off uh, in terms of your work ethic. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so in terms of uh, I guess the the old motif of, of of Channel Awesome in terms of crossovers, do they still happen regularly or as as, as often as they used to, or is that pretty much have has that died out in terms of crossovers? It never it never dies out because there's always a crossover to be done. It has slowed considerably. The anniversary movies gave us a great opportunity for us all to get together and do a bunch of crossovers at once. Uh, but because not all of us, we're all all, all over the world here, and so it's harder for us to coordinate stuff. And while we can do crossovers from our respective locations, at times it doesn't feel as fun 
to do it that way, as opposed to being in the room and, and physically interacting. And I've done them before, uh, both ways, and I still love doing uh, uh, them. But crossovers are also an additional video on top of everything else we've already got on our plate. And because it, and because it happens less frequently, we also have the uh, uh, the mindset of, well, I should do my damnedest to work hard on this and make it something special. Now, uh, uh, it has not died out, but it is less frequent these days as a result of that. Not everyone gets invited to the same conventions. Oh, that's uh, absolutely. And, and um, going back to, I guess, I guess I, you could say I've done one That Guy with the Glasses style crossover, and that was with Spoonie in 2010 when we did the Highlander Endgame crossover. I'm not sure if you saw that I one. I have seen that one. I enjoyed that. That was actually, actually, you know what comes to think of it? That was the first time I ever saw you before. <laughs> Was it really yeah. that video? Mm-hmm. We did, we did it. We didn't meet before that. Uh, we might have like met in passing, but uh, but it was the first time I'd ever heard of you before. Oh, okay. That was the first time a lot of people heard of me, and I give Noah credit for. I was always asked him afterwards, uh, years afterwards, when I used to talk to him semi regularly. I was like, oh, "Why did you like? Did you have to like? Why did you do that with me? Like, you didn't know who I really was. I guess you took like a minor risk." I think his response was, well, I thought you were a guest of the convention. Well, I was technically, but that's not a reason I would just do a crossover with someone <laughs> or a big project. That was a lot of work, uh, that, that project. But I'm glad it, it turned out. So going back real quick, just the final the final uh, crossover movie, if you don't count the Uncanny Valley, the Tiboli Flea, the huge, epic, godfather-length one. So as, as you stated before, uh, one of the... Uh, reasons why that was so long is that you wanted to, you basically wanted to get everything out for all these characters, but also it was, the, it was supposed to be the final hurrah for the nostalgia critic. Yep. When you when everyone on Channel Awesome heard that Doug was shutting down that show in character, what was what was the reaction at the time? Uh, that was a bit that that's a bit of uh, uh, a problem in itself because not everyone got told. Oh, before the movie was produced. Yeah, and and. That was kind of a, and that's a kind of a point of contention that's been for a lot of people because of the fact that that uh, the simple fact is, you know, it's not a matter of, of of quality. If you think if you don't like Doug's videos, that's fine. If you don't like my videos, that's fine. Uh, but but the simple fact is, Doug is from a pure numbers perspective more popular than most of us. Sure. And as a result of that, uh, a lot of people primarily go to Channel Awesome to see him and they will watch other videos because just because they're there but they went for the critic so you have a bunch of producers that know that the content draw some knew he was leaving that that show was leaving but some had no idea exactly. so i'm guessing the shot the shot could have been oh my god no one's going to come to this site anymore mm-hmm. potentially because it and it does affect us as a result of that and there were people who announced well i'm never coming to the site anymore and of course, you know, most of the time they came back, or or if they did, we they weren't young. I mean, they didn't care about the other content anyway. But there was that concern about it. And did you know? Did you know before the movie? I did because I was going to be in the movie, so I knew that. Uh, and I had talked to Doug about this before that he was going to uh, uh, retire the critic character that he had had grown burnt burnt out from doing it, <clears throat> and he wanted to uh, uh, you know stop it. So I knew. But because we also didn't want to share plot details with a bunch of people, we couldn't tell other people that it was going to happen. And so a lot of people only first discovered it because of Tiboldi Flea. And they're like, wait, what? I, I didn't know this was going to happen. And it's, and you notice that, especially as the build... And you can probably guess it as you go through the buildup to Tiboldi Flea's release. Basically, he was doing as many Nostalgia Critic crossovers as he could before... 
uh, uh, before the character was killed off. So, you know, just give some one last boost, people. Let's have them uh, cross over with this guy. Let's have them cross over with this woman and, you know, that kind of thing. So, so it's basically one of those movies where you have a set where you get the script only for your character's lines and no one's giving the full script. Hmm. Although in our case, in our case, everyone in Tiboldi Flea got the full script. Although, and, and, and even then, when I looked at the, how long the script was, I was like, are we going to be able to film this in, in this amount of time? Because this, this, <laughs> this is bigger than anything we've done before. Are we sure we can do this? Oh, yeah, we'll be fine. When you, when you heard the news that Doug was ending the character, did you try to talk him out of it? Or did you, you just said, okay, it's your decision, roll with it? I did, uh, but not for the reason, uh, but not exactly in the same way you would think. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, you know, obviously I'm a huge fan of comic books. I'm also a huge fan of Doctor Who. I, act, I take on the attitude, you know, from a brand perspective, that you have this character, you have this name. Why not pass it on to somebody else? I, I took the attitude of he should find a new nostalgia critic. And, of course, the attitude was, well, you know, they're obviously going to, going to be compared to Doug, and there's going to be a lot of negative feedback for anyone who does that. I recommend the same thing when uh, Lindsay Ellis nos- uh, retired the nostalgia chick name, uh, that we should find a new person to, to fill in this role because it's, because it's a title and it should be passed on and you can still get, get value out of it. Uh, but the attitude was they'll always, they'll always be compared negatively to the original person who did it. And mm-hmm. and they will and as a result, you know, we should just retire gracefully, have a good ending, and that kind of thing. And I respect that. I respect that. That is their call to make. But uh, in my mind, James Bond, Doctor Who, Star Trek in general, in general, whenever there's a new show or when there was a new Captain of the Enterprise, there was so much comparison uh, from uh, Kirk versus Picard kind of deals. But in the end, it still continued. It still had different person in the role, and you can have those comparison fights, but you're still making new stuff with it. And maybe if, if at some point I decide to retire atop the fourth wall, maybe I will do the same thing. So you saw the value of keeping the brand intact, even if the actual actor portraying that character wasn't going to be sticking around for it. You at least saw there was some, some value to this yes. at the time, whether or not they wanted to pass it along to someone else. You know, it, it, I guess it's not the same thing as having the three stooges and plugging in a new stooge, because there's only one stooge in this case, not, not the belittle the character, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Oh, he probably wouldn't take it as an insult. Oh, Doug loves slapstick. But that's how I, I always looked <laughs> no, at no, I get what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, but that's how I always looked at the AVGN character. Whenever I spoke to James, I'm, I'm just like, well, this is like the Three Stooges. They did it for like 50 years. They did it forever. You know, like it, it was it was sort of timeless. It was sort of like there was no definitive, definitive ending or beginning to this character. And that's the way I always look at stuff like in terms of uh, internet characters. It's almost like vaudeville. The way I always describe it, like YouTubers, early YouTubers are like vaudevillians, where they're like doing these over-the-top characters that doesn't really exist as much anymore in terms of new YouTubers. Uh, but for, for, that, for that sort of error, whether it's AVGN, whether it's uh, people from that guy with the glasses, uh, portraying these sort of characters in a series, that's the way I always looked at it, where it's like you could have these characters disappear without having acknowledged an actual ending. Yeah. So that's why I thought it was a big risk uh, ending uh, a character like that, and obviously it was brought back. Uh, so, but during that sort of nebulous time of whether or not you know what's going on, I guess there, w- was there concern of, among some content creators if, because they saw potentially their views uh, dropping from the site. There was concern. Uh, there was actually there was a very big mindset along with us. It's kind of feeling a malaise that that an era was ending, that everything was coming to a close, and it didn't help that one of the themes of Tiboldi Flea really came across like, like, like we're coming to an end kind of a thing, even though it was just the critic ending, the rest of us were still there, still producing content! 
So when you see the script in terms of in terms of tone, style, where it's like, okay, this is the end of an era. Was there any pushback in terms of, well, is this sort of killing us all in a way versus the one character? A bit, yeah. There was there was a lot of thought process that it felt like you know losing the critic meant losing all of us, and we should like try to make it a bit more. Uh, 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 what's the word? More reassuring in tone that this is not the end for us. We're still going to be doing our thing, uh, and this is and we and we are still going to produce content. And this is in the end, it's only a movie. It is just saying farewell to somebody, and we and you know you can take comfort in knowing we are still going to be around. Doug is still going to be around doing a new show, doing his thing. Sure. So. And we'll just finish up on, I guess, in the Channel Awesome stuff. Uh, and it's been about, it's been almost, I guess, what, five years since that Taboli Flea film. Uh, there's been other projects from Doug. He's brought back the character. Where do you see uh, Channel Awesome nowadays in terms of the website, in terms of it being a group of content creators? Is there room in sort of the modern internet with YouTube being such a, you know, the, the giant place where we consume all the media? Is there still room for a site like Channel Awesome in order to get, you know, to get notice or to basically have a new sort of um, new new golden age of a batch of content creators starting up at the same time and being discovered? Or is that sort of a, a past? Definitely. I definitely think that there that there is still room for this kind of thing. Uh, a few years ago, there was a big uh, new talent drive because several producers had left and they felt like we need new blood on the site. Uh, there is still room for a large community of producers who can you know who uh, uh, share common interests uh, and build a sense of community among us all. Especially since we all have our particular niches. Uh, even if we have, like, if we even say we had multiple anime reviewers, or multiple comic reviewers, or multiple movie reviewers, uh, each one brings their own style to it. And to compare this again to a superhero thing, uh, DC is not diminished by having both Superman and Superboy in it. It is not diminished by having Superman and, uh, uh, just trying to throw a random example out there. Blue Beetle. It is okay to have both a Batman and a Blue Beetle. Both are, you know, a Ted Core Blue Beetle. Just a, just a, you get my point. The universe is enriched by having a variety of different people around with their own particular set of skills, their own particular uh, talents and audiences. And there is always room for people to interact, for new fans to discover what old fans have already known for a long time and to work alongside each other to promote good stuff talking about geeky stuff talking about about professional stuff all there is still room for this kind of website and this kind of community and i am still happy to be a part of it even when there's been bad times even when i have disagreed with people even when i have agreed with people about about directions things are going I still feel there's a place for it. So you see the advantage being the fact that the community that may not may not be t- uh, exist on say a random YouTube video. You see that existing in a site like this, whether it's the forums or in the community section, where it it seems more, I guess, um, more it, not necessarily not the word I'm looking for, not insular. But you just—it seems like more of a concerted effort, I guess, overall, hmm. for the community to come together, watch all these videos, comment on all the same videos. Is that basically how you see it? Yes. And not just among the viewers, but among the actual content producers as well. Sure. Uh, I guess I can 
the only straight analogy I can have to it is RetroWare TV had a similar mindset, and RetroWare TV is still around. And I, and I helped run the site for two years in terms of getting all the you know the best retro video game related content creators on one site. And I guess yeah, it always comes down to can you build a site that's greater than the sum of its parts? Can you do can you do projects that you would not have been able to have been accomplished without bringing everyone together? Like for example, something like Kickassy or Suburban Nights, and in the case of Retroware, the video game years. Could you can you possibly do that? And I, and I guess there's something to be said for that. And even if uh, you know, even if it w- won't be you know the same as it was five years ago, how could it be? You know, as, if you're getting something out of it, then it's still you know it's still it gets worthwhile. You know, cross posting things of that nature. Even though even though Blip's gone, you're not yeah. cross posting Blip anymore. <laughs> yeah, so you blip, had to replace blip, all the well, Blip. Losing Blip was a huge blow. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, like I said, Rever died, Blip died out because Blip never turned a profit in its entire existence. <laughs> you know, so it was, just, it was just bound. Disney buys it, and it's gone within like a few months. You know. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about comic books now. And it's very interesting. You said that you really weren't a huge comic book fan, but you're one of the more widely, or if not one of the, you know, bigger comic book reviewers on on YouTube. So. Explain that to me, because I, I I didn't expect you to say that to me. This isn't well. Uh, well, here I, let me. I have to get into this with my long history of superheroes and comics. With this, okay. Uh, I got into superheroes originally in the '90s with like Spider-Man the animated series, X-Men animated, Batman animated, all that all that fun jazz. But what actually got me into comic books was not me uh, as a little kid, but my brother who was a huge fan of Nightwing, Dick Grayson, after he had uh, uh, stopped being Robin. Uh, he started collecting Nightwing comics, but just Nightwing. Nothing else related to the character. <laughs> nothing, nothing, no other books out there, just Nightwing. And he had, like, on his bedroom wall, he had pinned up, like, every single issue of Nightwing. Uh, Which is in, like, Dick Grayson, the- by the way, the, the original Robin to everyone, right? Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so he, like, every issue pinned up, and occasionally he would let me take them down and read them. And I became so interested in a lot of this stuff. And in one particular thing, there was a, uh, what was called a Secret Files and, uh, and uh, I think, Origin Secret. Uh, uh, yeah, something like that, which basically talked about uh, Dick Grayson's history. And one of the things I had never known about him, at least comic book version, was that he was part of a superhero team called the Teen Titans. And I was, ah. and I was like, there were other superheroes around? What? Like, he was a part of a team? <laughs> I, I did not know that about him. And so uh, uh, as part of planning to go on a trip to like a camp thing as part of a school thing, uh, it was there was going to be like a two, three-hour bus ride to this camp. And so for whatever reason, I think most because we were just looking for geeky paraphernalia because that's what my family did sometimes, uh, we went to this comic book store called The Source. And lo and behold, there was this trade paperback I found on the shelf for JLA slash Titans, The Technus Imperative. It was a uh, three-issue miniseries crossing over every single member of the Teen Titans that ever existed versus the current JLA at the time. And I was like, wow, I know who Nightwing is, and this seems to promise a fight between Nightwing and Batman, and I've always wanted to have something like that. I was thinking I was about, like, 12, 13 years old. Most most people who start getting into comics tend to do so at a very young age. I did so right around the around the age of being a teenager, which is why I said when I started, I'm not, I wasn't that big a comic book fan because I read this book. I became so enamored with the Titans and them being a family and all this rich long history. I wanted to read more, so I started collecting the then Titans book, which was just the Titans. And again, that's what I mean by not being a huge comic book fan when I started because I only collected one book. And that was just the Titans. 
I did not know anything else that was going on in the DC Universe at the time. I didn't care about the rest of the DC Universe. The Titans were my jam, and they were the only things I wanted to read on a month-to-month basis. And what's hilarious about that is that is that the DC Universe tended to take the same attitude about the Titans, completely ignoring them. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You, find, you, you, you manage to find the one book you want to follow, all of a sudden it's, it's treated like garbage. That must feel great, right? Yep. It's the, one, it's the one you identify with. Wow, I can sit here on my podcast and say that I was into comics longer than you were. Because mm. I, <laughs> I, I grew up with comics ever since I was like four years old. My parents would buy me comics. They'd let me buy one or two. And then I remember my first comic being um, Marvel Tales 166 which was a reprinting of Amazing Spider-Man 28, which was uh, Spider-Man versus the Molten Man. And it's also the same issue he graduates from high school, Peter. Oh, neat. And I'll never forget that comic because it's actually an iconic cover because it's, it's something rare for the time. The entire comic, 80% of it is black, the entire comic, especially for a comic in the 60s. And you just see, like, the glint of uh, Molten Man in the distance. Who's a, you know, he's a C-list Spider-Man villain. He probably hasn't showed up more than, like, four or five times in the, in the comic's history. Um, and then you have Spider-Man in the front. You can see the red part of his costume, and that's it. And it was just a very striking cover uh, at the time. And from that point, I just became a huge Spider-Man fan. He became my sort of you know the, the, my favorite going forward from there. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was the fact that I identified, uh, you know, he was a geek or nerd, and I was kind of geeky growing up. You know, I was picked on. Peter was picked on. You know, I, I guess that's why a lot of people like that character. Yeah. Um, Interesting that you got, you got into it basically based upon the cartoons first versus it sounds like more comics. Yep. Um, I, I was sort of – it was always interesting to me that I was turned off, for example. Uh, the X-Men cartoon was outstanding from the early 90s. However, I couldn't stand the Spider-Man cartoon. <laughs> but that, so that's interesting that we came from two different places because I was used to the character being a little bit younger than the Spider-Man portrayed in that cartoon – um, but I was also used to seeing Spider-Man actually throw a freaking punch every once in a while and actually have a little bit of violence going on there. Because in that cartoon, you never saw anything like that. He did, it he was did like do neutered. it on occasion. I rewatched the series recently because I keep thinking I might do a retrospective on, on it. He does occasionally punch people. <laughs> Not very often, but occasionally. <laughs> if, you have to, if you have to point out, like, every fifth episode, there might be a punch thrown. Most of the time, it was kicks. He tended to kick people, like, swing yes. in and hit someone that way. I guess people at Fox thought that kicks was somehow less violent than punching someone. Well, uh, what had happened was that there was a lot, <laughs> that after Power Rangers and the X-Men, uh, there was a lot of pushback uh, uh, by... by uh, uh, family groups against violent television. So suddenly there were a lot of new regulations in place or a lot of people like really concerned, crap, we don't want to get sued, so we should like tone things down a bit. Hence why also Spider-Man animated tended to have more ha- and have laser guns instead of actual guns. Uh, I can understand that because even back in the early A's with G.I. Joe, they had laser guns versus you know bullets, but they still had missiles and they still punched each other. <laughs> you know that was I guess that was the big difference. Um, before I get into the G.I. Joe, because that's an experience of where I saw the cartoon before the comic book, and that's an entirely different beast. Uh, how about you know what I ended up watching uh, just as much as X Men and way more than Spider Man. The Tick cartoon was outstanding. Oh, love the Tick. The Tick was almost like I, that was for adults. That was not for kids. But somehow, you know, made it on there with that, like, eek the cat. You know, that was that was must-see TV, uh, Fox Saturday morning cartoons in, like, the early to mid-90s, right? That, that was, was a it. magical time for, for, for cartoons time. Eek the cat, uh, the tick. Uh, I'm trying to, think, trying to think of other ones. Like, I mentioned all the superhero ones. 
Animaniacs, Tiny Toons. Sure. Carmen San Diego was Fox as well. Love that Carmen was good, San Diego. even though even though it's not it's not a comic book, it's a video game. Still, it's online, still. You know. <laughs> it was still good. I think they caught her once. Yeah. And I think they're doing a I think they're doing a movie actually. Anyway, but getting back to I guess comic books versus cartoons. You know, like before the nineties you did you had a handful of cartoons of comic books. You had the Spider Man from the sixties and the Fantastic Four from the sixties. You had Super Friends in the seventies, right? Then you get to the eighties and you have uh, what Spider Man Electric Company stuff a little bit. And you have like that, what was it? They had the X Men movie from the early eighties, what the Kitty Pride one. That, that was a special they made for uh, uh, as a pilot for a series that it never got off the ground because Marvel's uh, cartoon division kind of collapsed with everything except Muppet Babies. Sure. So they so they had that, and they had I think they had they had a, a, one other Spider Man from the eighties, yeah, maybe actually, the early eighties. Two Spider Man series going on simultaneously. One was just Spider Man. The other was Spider Man and his amazing friends. Sure. So, but that was missed by me. So I started getting to the comic books, you know, mid to late '80s. Um, so that that sort of tempered my expectations of a Spider-Man cartoon, like I said, and an X-Men cartoon, which I thought was excellent. The X-Men cartoon they got a, they got around the non-violent stuff somehow with Wolverine. Mm. But I remember the shock of my face uh, going from a huge being a huge GI Joe fan. In my opinion, that animated GI Joe cartoon, the Sumbo one from '82 to '87, are still the probably, in my opinion it's the greatest animated show ever. In my opinion, for lots of reasons I won't get into, I will start a debate. But going from that to the comics was like a punch to the face, because one of the first GI Joe card, uh, comic books I picked up, seven GI Joes were killed in one issue, and it was like it was like I went to a funeral at that point. It was it was like almost like a loss of innocence where I realized that wow. Cartoons and comic books are two entirely different worlds mm. that you have to be able to be careful about. I don't know if that you had a similar experience like that where you're like, holy shit, what the hell just happened? You know, like I was watching I was watching uh characters that I had the toy of that I I play with every day getting gunned down in cold blood inside a comic book, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. It helps that uh uh because this was this was the early nineties and they were able to actually have they're actually starting to have death in, in uh, stories. Uh, for example, X-Men animated series, first episode, uh, a character who's a part of the team dies. Like, right off the Morph. bat. Like, holy crap. Yeah. Uh, Batman the animated series, you know, you know, was open about the fact that people died and, and, that, and that this kind of thing is dangerous. Uh, Spider-Man did not have it as often, but it was a thing that happened on occasion. So... De- so it was much easier for me to transition in, you know, from co- from cartoons to comics because I could see that, you know, the cartoons at the time I had watched were just a bit more mature in that regard and understood uh, that sometimes people die in this kind of line of profession. Oh yeah, it's it sort of unfortunately. I'm guessing if I started with the GI Joe comic book, which is supposedly excellent, I never read the original run. I should pick up a trade paperback of that. Um, they tried to keep sort of the same style as much as they could for the comic book. Obviously, for the cartoon, obviously you can't be killing off seven GI Joes in yeah. one episode of the cartoon. You can't be doing that. But um, I'm, I'm getting off tra- tra- topic here. But let's get into some violence going on. One of the other sh- punches to my face was Batman: Death in the Family. I remember walking in. My father we went to um, indoor flea market, had the trade paperback for sale, and my dad bought it. It was like the second printing already of it. That was hugely popular. To, to let the other viewers know what Death in the Family was, it was a four-part Batman storyline where they killed off the second Robin, Jason Todd. At the time, most of the public had no idea there was a second 
Robin. Uh, so it was it was very controversial, and they actually had a call in eight hundred number or nine hundred number, whatever, a call in number to vote whether or not Robin would survive. Uh, being killed or not, or being hurt or killed or whatever, and it was it was I think it was like by one percentage point they decided to kill him off. I think it was like uh, by like twenty calls or something like that. Although they later discovered that one guy had been auto dialing the kill him option. Really, that's very interesting. I, oh my god, that would have changed the history of comic books right there. Some one idiot auto dialing changed the history. Yeah, but anyway, so just reading that was a shocker. Seeing you know a bloody dead beat into a pulp by the Joker. Well, he was killed by the bomb, but he was going to be dead anyway. Yeah. Uh, Robin. Uh, that was shocking. And then you think Joker gets killed in that same story. Spoilers. You know, this is 30 years old. But uh, No, no. He, he becomes an ambassador to Iran. <laughs> yes. With the Ayatollah was in the comic as well. I remember that. Because the 80s. <laughs> yes, because the 80s. And they're, you know, well, they're kind of still our enemies now. Anyway. But, um... I guess that's when you start to grow up very quickly, going from reading, oh, Spider-Man's just knocking out some common criminals and muggers, to, oh, uh, uh, Robin's getting beat to death by a crowbar by the Joker. Oh, that's that's a, a different change from the 50s, right, and from the 60s cartoon you would see on, you know, for reruns. Just a touch. <laughs> yeah. And this is, uh, you know, during the time when I, I, you know, the 80s was Dark Knight Returns, you had Watchmen, you had the Batman movie sort of, uh, quote-unquote, bring comic books back to being adult in the late 80s. In, reali- in reality, uh, uh, while they get they tend to get credit for that, in reality, they had actually been moving in that direction for a while now. I think a lot of uh, credit goes to Den- uh, Denny O'Neill for his work on Batman at the time. But in terms of mainstream consciousness, that's where you started getting uh, uh, the minds, you know, people understanding, oh, this is a darker character. Oh, sure. I mean, Frank always talks about the comics, the Batman comics from the 70s uh, being um, the ones that really brought the character back to a, a good spot. Yep. Uh, at, at the cartoony 50s and 60s. But, uh, yeah, they probably had no idea. So I didn't know what I was originally reading. I, I figured out at first where I said, oh, Robin never stole a car, so this must be a different Robin at the time. And I figured it out, and I got over it. But that's just when you're a little kid, you, you grow up quickly. Yeah. But then you go from that to the early 90s when you have Image and Valiant coming onto the scene, and that's just violence in your face because they didn't abide by the Comics, uh, comics Code Authority. They just did their own damn thing, mm. and they were, they were proud of it. Which brings us to uh, a topic I want to get to, uh, which is going to be the comic book crash of the mid-90s. Do you, do you remember that, the, in the build-up to that, with all the Chromian covers and all the, the holograms and all that garbage? I was, not, I was not an active comic book fan at the time, because, like I said, like I said uh, you know, that was my I think. Uh, but I was aware of some of it happening, especially in the late 90s, uh, in regards to two things. One, the chromium covers, the holofoil covers, because as a little kid, ooh, shiny, this must be valuable, this must be important. <laughs> and secondly, the Clone Saga. Even though I did not oh, read comic, oh my God. even though I did not read comic books at the time, I knew the Clone Saga was a thing, and I knew it went that it had gone off the rails. Oh God, oh God, I didn't oh even God. read it at the time, uh, but I knew that, that something was up. That there was this really cool character called the Scarlet Spider, and there was a villain called the Jackal. Uh, but 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 it was not good. <laughs> that's you you jumped way ahead, and I can't believe you brought up. That's what that's why I stopped reading comics in the nineties. That's exactly why I stopped reading comics. All right, let's unpack this. So in the, in the early nineties, they started doing. Uh, this is for the audience. We all know this. Lakar uh, and I. They started doing stuff like variant co- covers. For example, when they rebooted X Men number one, there was like three different covers. For example, I think it was actually a total of five because uh, it was a big gatefold uh, fold out kind of thing. Yeah, 
Sure, I was being generous. I was trying to be conservative. There was five of them. Uh, the, the first time I saw hologram covers really being used was, was the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man. So Spider-Man had four different books. Yep. Amazing, spectacular, web up, and regular Spider-Man. So all four of those issues for that month, for example, Amazing Spider-Man was number three, I think it was like 365 or so. Mm-hmm. There was a cool little hologram on there, okay? But then things went off the rails within a few years. I'd say within a couple years. People were, I guess the publisher said, oh, wow, people are thinking these are all limited. Let's have every other freaking issue be a limited or chromium or, you know, uh, die cut cover. So Valiant started doing this. And Image was, was the worst where every other Image comic had some sort of chromium, uh, you know, like if it was silver, it would be like, you know, die cut and popping out. And they'd do the holograms. And it brought in people that were not comic book fans to start and invest in collecting comic books. So all of a sudden, you have a rapidly shifting industry going from, well, you have people that have bought and read comics forever, to now let's start catering to people coming in lately because we see our numbers blow up with poly-bagged comics. I forgot about that even. Mm. Let's start catering to these people, these idiots that are going to go out and buy every issue uh, every month for comics that they're never going to read just because they think it's going to increase in value. They're going to go out and buy four or five uh, you know, copies of each comic, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. The problem is, within a few years, the bottom dropped out in the entire thing. So by the mid-90s, you have companies potentially going bankrupt. You have Valiant in trouble. You have Marvel going bankrupt, and that's why they sold off all their movie rights in the 90s to all different studios mm-hmm. and are struggling to get them back today. Just a really weird time to be a comic books fan. Uh, there's, a producer, there's a producer named S.F. Debris who has done, I think, a 15-part look at the dark age of comics he calls it the rise and fall of the comics empire which details exactly what happened because the thing is the speculator boom it turns out was just one part of of the thing that caused everything to go wrong if it was just that we it, the 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 market might have survived but there was a lot of crap going on at marvel sure and you're talking about shitty storylines it's not oh not just from a creative standpoint it was it's all on the business side ron perelman bought marvel and wanted to create a mini disney he wanted to make it a huge empire and so uh uh there was this expectation of of buying out different companies that associated with it uh uh we can and and hey we we can buy uh, like this this uh, trading card company and we'll just directly make trading cards and and you know so we don't so we could cut out the middleman for licensing fees kind of thing without realizing you're also buying on the debt of those companies you're buying on the other licenses that they have with other companies that are also really expensive and basically just each one of these things and just bad short-sighted business decisions that ended up screwing over Marvel big time. You're also taking on the operating costs and risk yep. of producing producing cards yourself versus getting a guaranteed income from just giving the license out. Exactly. You know, it's like it's like are you guaranteed to make a little bit of money with no risk, or are you risking uh, making a lot of money? But if you fail, you're, you're going to be killed. Exactly. You know. But but along that way, going back to Spider Man, I was buying every Spider Man comic. I think I had I had every issue from like three. 30 or so, approaching 400. So coming up to 400, they wanted to make like a big deal out of it, right? Yeah. And at that point, they'd even switched to, uh, I think the, I think by, by around 369 or 370, they started coming out every other week or, yep, uh, you know, like twice Spider-Man a month. Books and, and this 
bizarre and, and of course it's kind of greedy and, and and awful practice where instead of just having each book tell its own stories uh uh it was multi-issue storylines where you had to buy like well for part one yeah. you need amazing spider-man number 370 uh for part two you needed spectacular spider-man number 28 kind of thing basically you had to buy all four books if you wanted to have the full story and that was Maximum Carnage, which was a fucking mess. Um, I see. I actually and, and like it, Maximum Carnage, but okay. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, <laughs> it, let's. It's like okay. Let's bring in Deathlock for an issue and Captain America. Just it, it, first of all, I ca- I cannot stand the Carnage character. I can enjoy and 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 tolerate Venom for what he is, but then when you have a symbiote of a symbiote and have what even made. Venom, interesting, being a doppelganger, now just being a, a psychopath, homicidal maniac. Now I'm out. Now that villain means nothing to me. It's not interesting at all. Anyway, by the way, his first appearance was Cletus Cassidy uh, in issue 344. Anyway, <laughs> just, to show my, just to show my street cred here. Um, but in the build-up to 400, they wanted to make a big deal, right? So they go back and do arguably the stupidest thing ever. And not maybe the history of comics, but at least for Spider-Man comics. Then again, they've probably done other things afterwards. Like, uh, don't tell me if they brought back Gwen Stacy at all. They probably have. Uh, anyway, but they decide that we're going to take an obscure comic book from what? Like 1973 or so? Yep. Uh, issue like 158 or something? And, and this is 200 issues mm-hmm. later at this point. Or, 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 and we're going to take a storyline where a guy makes a clone of Spider-Man. And wouldn't it be cute? If after that issue, the clone is the guy who actually existed as Peter Parker for the last, you know, 20 plus years, wouldn't that be cute? So the person that you were watching and rooting for and buying issues of for the past 20 years was an imposter. Wouldn't that be something? And you know what? They did it. Um, and I cannot believe that that was allowed to go through to this day. I cannot believe that, that they allowed that. Part of the problem was that, 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 they, that actually a lot of the creators had the same kind of attitude you did about it, Pat. That a lot of people were saying, no, this is going to feel like a betrayal. Uh, people are not going to follow this. They're not going to be interested in this. But uh, there were a few factors that, that contributed to making it happen. One, at the time, Spidey himself as a character had become too grim, dark, and serious, and like like talking to himself and calling himself the Spider. So there was this mindset of, well, maybe we can we can blame all this all our own crappy storytelling as, oh, it was just another guy this whole time. Wasn't that part of the lead up though? They had planned that though. They had as not part planned the it. They, they they actually they they figured this might be a way out of this rut that they had created for themselves. Oh, so they they they're placing good money after bad. Then we have a bad situation. I remember those issues where all of a sudden Spider Man becomes darker, and I'm like, "This isn't Spider Man." Yeah. Like, what am I reading? So they said, "Okay, we'll make it worse." Yep. Well, well, at the time, I mean, you know, some creators thought, thought thought it was a bad idea. Other people thought, "Hey, this is a chance for us to actually like do a clean start." Uh, a lot of us are not not fans of Mary Jane Watson and the wedding, so why don't we? So we can. Let let this Peter retire gracefully and have a have a new character with new situations and you know have a real shot in the arm and have like a funny happy Spidey. We can solve a bunch of problems at once like this, and so they greenlit that. But there was still uh, uh, pressure on all sides trying to decide: Are we really going to do this, or are we just going to like do a fake out and claim that he is? But like in number four hundred, reveal: No, no, Peter was Spider Man the whole time. It's it's it, it was just a fake out. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember one of the issues. It was like three ninety four, where the la- one of the last panels, like a, sh- a shadow over. I guess that would be the fake Peter or the real one, where it said, "Oh, I've been away a long time" or something. And I was like, I had heard rumblings that they were going to do that, so I didn't even. I don't think I even bought the four hundredth issue when it came out. I was out before then. And here's the I funny thing: as a result of you not doing that, because 
the bankruptcy happened, and so the marketing department in Marvel basically became had editorial control over a bunch of books because because they needed to decide how to make money because now Marvel's in this really dire straits. Clone Saga starts happening. Spider-Man books are make are making bank, and they're making so much bank that the marketing department is like, "Look, I know you have this plan to resolve this storyline, but uh, no, you need to stretch it. You need to the you know start adding in like tie-in material. You need to keep this going for as long as possible." So it was supposed to be a storyline that maybe lasted like six months to a year, stretched out for three years, and so the four hundredth issue ended up being something entirely different, which. Its own kind of created decision that 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 was controversial at the time. They killed Aunt May, and yeah. and it's actually a very sweet issue. I actually really enjoy it. Mary, uh, Aunt May had been in a coma for like a year or so now. Uh, she w- she woke up from it, revealed to Peter that she always that she had known that he was Spider Man for years and years, and then died. Which again doesn't make sense in the storyline, but whatever. They, it was sweet still. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right, and that's when he starts going off where I'm the spider when she's in the coma. That's right. Yeah. Now, now those bad issues are coming back into my memory <laughs> from like the three eighties. Yeah, that sort of that set him off the deep end at the time because because Aunt May was sick. That's and the fa- right. And the fake parents. That, oh, that's right. And the fake parents. Oh my god. And oh my god. This and, and for the audience, this all happens within like a two and a half year period. All this shit happens. Maximum carnage. Parents come back that are fake parents that he thinks are, you know, after 20 years come back. And then you have Aunt May going into coma. He gets all grim, dark, and then the clone saga. Yep. This is all packed in to this time period where you're like, what? Like, this is a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And it was. And I tried to, and I, and I tried to stick around for it. I tried my best. The clone saga was my first ever video review. And so every so the anniversary every year now in October... Uh, is a Clone Saga review where I look at a storyline from it. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, there was a, a Gwen Stacy clone. Thank God I did not... There was a Gwen Stacy clone because she was actually the impetus of the original Clone Saga. There was a Gwen Stacy clone, and, and that's what, what got them on the trail of finding this uh, villain called the Jackal, uh, who cloned Spider-Man and then both died with the clone Gwen just going off on her own uh, on her own way in adventures. I, as far as I know, they have never actually brought Gwen Stacy back to life. It has always been clones. Thank God. There's there's some integrity, right? Yeah. <laughs> Although, some... after uh, one more day, they did want to bring uh, uh, JM uh, J. Michael Straczynski did want to bring Gwen Stacy back to life. They shot that down. At what point is there a, a veto by someone to say this is not good? You are you are right now. I'm talking about the editors and the writers of a comic book. You are temporary caretakers of characters. That if you go too far off the deep end, you are now changing the meaning of the character or past storylines. At what point do we get there? For me, it was the Clone Saga. Right now, it's the the. I know they're going to resolve it, but fucking Captain America being an agent of Hydra to me is a, is is insulting on so many levels. Um, at what point is there not pushback, but is there a need for like a say a tribunal of comic book caretakers to watch over to make sure this stuff doesn't go too far? Well, the problem is, you know, in some cases, uh, uh, it's ju- it's just a matter of we think we can do this well, and they're able to convince other people that they're going to do it well, uh, and they try. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Like I said, the Clone Saga was only supposed to last for so long, and then it would get resolved, and we would move on with our lives. And if that had happened, it might have been well-beloved as, as like, this very cool, interesting storyline, and then never or spoken of again. But as a result of 
executive meddling, of meddling in the marketing department, of editors constantly shifting and uh, and shifting corporate environments. It just happens. And let's face it, some people, they don't care if they're supposed to be shepherd, shepherding characters or being guardians of this kind of thing. The only thing that matters is the bottom line. And in some cases, they're right because, you know, you can't keep publishing the characters if they're not making money. But at the same time, short-sighted decisions that end up having long-term consequences that hurt things down the line. But isn't that where we are with the industry now? Where now it's predicated on huge events that happen every other year? Yeah. And so at, at that point, it's almost like characterization be damned, right? Yep. What's, what's, what's one of the big sort of – and we'll talk about the changing of the comic industry. We're, gonna, we're getting there. But when Civil War came out, what was that, 2006, 2005? Yep. The comic storyline, one of the biggest complaints was uh, characters like Iron Man and Mr. Fantastic were acting like assholes. And they weren't acting like how they normally act in the comic books. Mm-hmm. And that was they were just being written to fit this particular storyline. And the danger there is then, like, you just ups- either upset people, you turn them off, or you don't want to read the rest of the storyline, like in the case of me. Or it's just like, I don't want to read this. Mm. This isn't what I'm used to reading for the past 30 years. I, I, I wish I had an answer for you, because there honestly isn't. And I've been and basically this has been the story of my entire career on YouTube, trying to answer these questions and trying to parse the logic that goes into some of these decisions, and uh, uh, ultimately finding that sometimes people just don't know what the hell they're doing uh which is a shame because it's not like a singular movie where okay a singular movie may come and go someone screws it up okay but we're talking about a huge event that affects you know the entire run of all these different comics at the same time you know it's almost like you have to be even more extra careful to you know dot all your i's cross all your t's and and, and, you know to do these events Mm. And, and obviously they don't give a shit or at least they didn't because they got major news that we killed off Captain America. So it's, it's in the mainstream, which means we'll get 1.4% more sales or whatever exactly. for this month period. And that's all they care about. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm almost glad. Now we're getting to where the comic industry is, is now, at least with Marvel. Now I'm glad that Disney doesn't need to make money off of comics. Because it, I don't think they're going to be doing these huge events to the same extent they did in the past. Because now they're making money off the movies. Based on the comics. Uh, I hate to disappoint you. Well, they're not making money off the movies? Well, they're making money off the movies. The problem is the movies and, and, and the comic company are actually entirely different departments. And, 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 that's, been a, and that's been an ongoing problem uh, for, for, for the things. Marvel, Com- Marvel Comics itself is run by a, a, a guy named Ike Perlmutter, who uh, uh, I think I got his name right, is who... Actually, sometimes, as far as I know, gets into clashes over the movie industry because the movies tend to get more of a priority because they make more money, and uh, uh, and they don't get as and, and the comic division does not get as much attention as a result, and not as much support, and not as much help with that. Okay, if that was the case, they would not have made Captain America a Hydra agent. Yeah, right. Because that they did that right before what Civil War comes out last year. Uh, Civil Kinda War too. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, Captain America: Civil War. That was kind of weird timing. I mean, I'm talking about the movie too. It happened like right before the movie. There was a lot. So th- th- it's it's mind boggling what happens on a creative level, and I don't want to. I I, <laughs> I know I know we're getting into the weeds of the audience not familiar with the comics to this extent, but I, I just have a feeling that going forward, let's say for example, uh, someone doing a Marvel comic would be a lot will be a lot less free 
to say kill off a character if he if he if the if the movie division knows they're going to be using it soon. That you, you, think, know, you would hope. You would think so. You would think so. But actually, there's this great essay uh, uh, written by a guy named Colin Space Twinks. He uh, he uh, did this uh, this long essay. I don't I, because I don't do the entire ten squares. It's f you Marvel. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> shut the f up, Marvel, which breaks down how the comic part of Marvel does not know what the hell they're doing and have not known what the hell they were doing for years now. And and they don't know how to market their books. They don't know how to promote their books. They don't know how to do vertical in, vertical integration with their movies. And when they have attempted to do vertical integration, they've done it poorly. So do you have, do you have, a, do you have a prime example where, say, they couldn't capitalize on something happening in the movies or, or did something the opposite of? Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, they they list this one specifically. Uh, you have high profile uh, uh, release of the Scarlet Witch. You know, being being in the forefront of this movie, being a new character introduced, being the kind of character that people latch onto and say, "Hey, I want to know more about this person." Uh, the problem was Marvel was in the in the middle of a different of, of an event at the time. I think it was Secret Wars, uh, the, the 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 2015 version of Secret Wars, where the entire line. Was basically be was in the middle of this massive crossover with with oh, God. With, with weird tie-in miniseries is and stuff going on, as opposed to the regular Marvel universe. So they decided we're not going to release a Scarlet Witch book, capitalizing on this new fame and popularity. And when they did eventually release a Scarlet Witch comic, it was completely unrecognizable from the movie version, and it was uh, uh, not well marketed. It was not to- you know. There's not enough saying, hey, did you like this movie? Come check this out. You don't see any movie posters that say, hey, check this out. Check out the comic now and get special rewards or learn more about the character here kind of thing. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, a great example of that is also the Guardians of the Galaxy comic, which, you know, which they did uh, put in, you know, uh, 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 this is the cast of the movie as the new Guardians of the Galaxy will have a book promoting that. But they don't actually go out and say, go buy the Guardians of the Galaxy comic. It's like this movie. They don't try to match the tone of it. They don't try to have the same things going on with it. And they pretty much ignore what's going on in the movies. Or if they do eventually release a tie-in, it's so long after the movie has come out that no one cares anymore. Do you think it's because Dizzy doesn't see the trouble of doing it? They don't think it'll boost sales that much? Because, hell, it is what it is. The mar- you know, the movies and film universes are connected. They do a great job integrating those. Why bother meddling with the comics that aren't making as much money as the movies? Do you think that's part of it? or that is enti- It is entirely possible that, they're, that that's part of it. Or that uh, uh, maybe it's part of the contract that they don't actually uh, uh, get involved in the day-to-day operations of it. Because, let's face it, Disney's not bad at marketing. They know how to market their product. Well, 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 but Disney owns it though. They can get involved if they want to. They could. They could. It might, there might be something there, or like you say, they're just not interested in promoting the comics versus promoting the movies, which make which are the ones that make bank. I think. I think they see the comics as loss leaders, mm. or it's like it doesn't matter if the comics lose money every year. It keeps it in the public eye that we have these characters. Yeah. Because let's face it. The way the way children growing up nowadays, how they're discovering these these characters, it's not through comic books. It's through TV shows, cartoons, even probably apps and movies. Mm-hmm. The, the days of the comic stand are dead. In terms of getting up, I go to my local grocers. I can't find any place where I can easily uh, buy comic books and walk to like my supermarket. I wouldn't know where to look Except in my supermarket. Stores. Yeah, like when I was a kid, I can go to you know the latest little diner. 
uh, four blocks away had the you know the, the the wire stand that you know that re- that rotated, and that's how I bought comics before before a comic book store. And, and nowadays, if I want to get a comic book, I better damn well find an actual comic book store. Yep. Like so, so you have to make it a point to buy comics. You have to search them out versus them. You cannot find comic books by accident. Is what I'm trying to say in an in, in eloquent way. What's worse, they don't make even when you find comics. They don't make it easy for you to just jump right into them. Let me give you an example of this. Okay. Uh, now, let's say you are an X-Men. You want to start getting into the X-Men. You enjoyed the X-Men movies. You want to start reading the X-Men from the start. I don't care if there's like 30 years of history. I want to start reading this. <laughs> sure. How would you, if you wanted to start, where would you go to start reading, uh, uh, let's say, just Uncanny X-Men on its own? If I had no knowledge of it, I would have no idea where to start to get into it. Okay. How about, this is 2017. I know that there are services like Netflix around. Is there a service like that for comic books where I could where I could start reading, like pay like a monthly fee and have access to a huge library of comics that I could just start reading in my free time? You know, bring it with me on my tablet, read it during lunch, break, whatever. No, that does not exist. It does and it doesn't. Because Marvel has services like this. They do have an online service which has back issues. It doesn't have all the back issues. Oh, see, I didn't know it existed. I I would sign up for this. (laughs) What's more, it's not a good... uh, There's also Comixology, which is a digital comics distributor that uh, uh, that, Uh, that that sounds familiar. It It works. Next problem with that, cost. Because with Comixology, it's not a monthly fee. You still pay for individual issues. And new comics are same price as they are on the shelf. That's insane. Yes, it is. How much is the Marvel one? Oh, here it is. Marvel Unlimited, $10 a month. See, this is bad. I don't know about this, and I'd be, I'd be someone who might want to do this. Who are they? Like, are, are they marketing this to the public? Nope. Are they putting a trailer in front of a, you know, say right before you see Guardians of the Galaxy 2, uh, run a commercial promoting this? Nope. That's, I guess that's your point. Next problem. Okay. You have this Marvel Unlimited service, then you know maybe there's gaps in there. I can probably look online to find find out what happened in between issues. You reach a certain point in say the 90s, and like we talked about, suddenly, oh wait a second, this is part three of a crossover, but I but there was no other but there was no other issues included in this collection. Oh crap, I'm there are missing chunks because. It's in a, it's in the middle of a crossover with something else that is not available on 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 the site, or I have to go track down that other series which has different characters, which has had uh, uh, entire situations revolving around it, or even characters are appearing in multiple issues where they're referencing some. The you know, Wolverine was I think at one point was on like two or three different teams. <laughs> so so it's an issue of not all the comics are available on the on the on the service. But then on top of that, they're not bundling up all these crossover events to make it easy for you to read them anyway. Uh-huh. All right, then. Yeah. Let's make it <laughs> even worse. <laughs> okay. So let's say, just uh, just for the sake of argument, that, okay, I'm not interested in reading the full history. I just want something. I just want something recent. I can start fresh, and, you know, if I really am interested in the backstory, I can, uh, uh, I can just start looking elsewhere. Oh, look, Marvel is having this new uh, initiative going on. They're calling it, like, uh, Now Marvel or Marvel Now or Heroic Age or whatever. 
They're starting out issues with number one. Well, okay, I should be able to just start getting into this. I'll, you know, this this character, he, oh, look, they've released a promotional poster talking about Marvel Now. Oh, this character looks cool. I wonder what their name is. Huh, there's nothing on this poster that indicates what their name is or what book they're appearing in or how I can buy them or why, or, or it's, you get my point. Yes, they're, 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 almost, they're almost like wanting you not – they don't want you to buy it almost. It's almost like they're going out of the way so you don't buy it. It's just a really cool piece of artwork. It's not telling you instructions like go to comic book store and pre-order this book. The pre-ordering thing is especially the big one with the, uh, with the Shut the F Up Marvel essay thing because the, comic, because the way the comic industry works is actually kind of similar to how the video game industry works. Pre-orders. Because comic stores get solicitations for books that are coming up, and they will push their big crossover events, and maybe they'll have a little blurb for a story. They won't tell you what characters will appear, you know, what might be interesting for readers. They're just pushing certain things over other things. So, of course, comic stores don't order as much, and sales numbers for comics are not determined by how many people are actually buying it in the shop, but how many are being ordered, uh, ordered by comic stores. This does not include digital sales or trade paperback sales. It only, only, only counts if a comic store is pre-ordering them. And they never tell the public, pre-order the books. Or tell your store to, to pre-order it. Is this a case with Marvel where, obviously, the, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing? Um, is this solvable? Can they have a liaison or a, a small team that could say, okay... Guys, this is our movie plan for the next, and, and Disney has it laid out for 10 fucking years, what to do with the movies. Let's build some storylines around these movies so that we can almost integrate the comics with, with the movies the same way the movies are integrated with the TV shows. It, could that possibly solve this so you don't have an insane, you know, huge crossover event going on that has nothing to do with the movies coming out that year? Yes, this is fixable. I think it is fixable. I think the industry can be saved. I think that this can and be fixed. But the problem is that requires an actual initiative on their part to recognize their failures and recognize that things need to change. And the problem is a lot of interviews that have that I have seen with editors and whatnot simply refuse to accept that the world is different than the way it was in the 1980s, where it was reasonable that you could buy like the entire back issues of an entire book if if you know you were dedicated enough to do so and they don't know how to market to in this day and age where people are more inclined to marathon tv shows and binge watch the things entire things where digital is more important than the uh, than the brick and mortar stores it requires an acknowledgement on their part that they that they have been doing things wrong and they need to change do you think do you foresee Disney getting the full movie rights back to Fantastic Four and X-Men anytime soon. X-Men, no. Fantastic Four, yes. You think that they're going to cut a deal the same way they did with Spider-Man? I think so. X-Men movies are still wildly profitable for Sony, and they're able to do their own thing. Uh, not Sony, uh, Fox. And they're able to do their own thing and, uh, uh, and, and you know, make Gonzo on it. And frankly, at this point, Marvel's probably... I, I don't think Marvel could integrate the X-Men into the current cinematic universe you know, without without a lot of uh, of uh, oh, by the way, mutants are a thing that exist. Uh, yeah, they could do it. Let's, I mean, the, fa- the Fantastic know. Four, on the other hand, I think after continual failures with it, they're finally going to realize we're not going to be. Uh, it's you know, unless we had a massive success in the next ten years with another Fantastic Four movie, I don't think they're going to be able to make it viable. 
they will probably make cut, cut a similar deal that's that uh, Sony made with Spider-Man, and you know maybe like retain rights to do like spin-off stuff with Fantastic Four related characters, but mostly just let Marvel have the Fantastic Four back. Oh, they also don't have the rights to do uh, Hulk movies. That's right. They they can have Hulk appear, but they can't do an actual Hulk movie. Universal has the rights to that still. I wonder, I wonder when that runs out, by the mm. way. I don't know if that's in perpetuity or not. Anyway, um, lots of things to unpack there. But I always saw the rumor that uh, the, that some deal must have been cut to allow Fox to do – now it's it's two different X-Men TV shows. That they didn't have always have the rights to do those. I don't know if, if, if that ever got cleared up or not. Um, but I think you're going to get there, though. Because I think once you get to the New Mutants, uh, you know, and start doing like New Mutants movies, it's like okay, the the, the mainstream's heard of X Men. The mainstream has not heard of New Mutants. Yeah, uh, that's a little bit different. When you go from characters like Wolverine and, and Storm and Cyclops to, you know, I can't even think of a lot of New Mutants. You'll, you'll have to name some for me. You know, like I think you're we're in a different sort of slot where I think that's going to be diminishing returns, in my opinion. And the same with the TV show. But yeah, but yes, Fantastic Four is an absolute disaster. And, and, it, and it, it actually makes me sad you know, that, that, the, that the family, the first family comic books, you know, the comic book that started up the Marvel Silver Age, you, know, you don't see them advertised anywhere. Is there even a, a, a freaking Fantastic Four comic book anymore? No, you don't see because, them... because, that, because, because of sheer pettiness. Yeah, the same thing with X-Men, right? I can't find a t-shirt with the X-Men on it besides maybe Wolverine. You know, when you go or a poster, did they cancel most of the X Men books as well? Are those uh, all, all I think gone? The X Men books are still around because they still make money. Fantastic Four, though, I don't think there's been one since Secret Wars. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'd have to double check, but I'm fairly certain there is not. Yeah, and they kill off Human Torch. I don't know if they brought him oh, back. Oh, they brought him back. But- uh, well, at least they did that. Yeah, why, because, why? because comic books. Because comic books, yeah. As long as it's not Gwen Stacy, I'm not going to care. <laughs> anyway. Or Uncle Ben. It used, to be, it's Gwen, it used to be Gwen Stacy, Bucky, and Uncle Ben. They brought back Bucky. But you know what? That was at least a really damn good story, so it was okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. Like that, uh, bringing back Uncle Ben would be like, okay, now he's going to die of old age. I mean, what's the point now? <laughs> but um, I guess that's where we're at now. We're, we're hoping that... Of all hopes, I mean, when, geez, when they announced and they brokered that deal with Spider-Man a couple of years ago, I, I lost my freaking mind. I, I was oh, through the through the moon that the, oh, you're going to have Spider-Man. I said I said to myself, there's no way you can do a Silver War movie without Spider-Man, not just because of the comic book storyline, but he's their biggest superhero. And the fact that they fit him in so eloquently uh, without showing him on any promotion, basically, I, I thought was fantastic. Indeed. But that's, where, but that's where we are with the current state of movies, though, uh, with the, all these. You know, we're talking about the, the golden age of comic book films now. We're talking about... I brought up earlier, you know, this year, yeah, Spider-Man's Guardians of the Galaxy 2 just comes out. And you, and you, you couldn't, if you told me five years ago there'd be a, a, a Guardians of the Galaxy 1 movie, I, I'd say you'd be lying. You know, and now you have two movies out. Uh, you know, um, you have Wonder Woman finally coming out after all these years, a Wonder Woman yep. movie. You're going to have, you're gonna have a, a Justice League movie, which isn't, hopefully isn't as bad as Batman v Superman. You know, <laughs> uh, you got Black Panther around the corner. You have an Inhumans TV show coming out. A freaking Cloak and Dagger TV show, mm-hmm. which to me is insane. Uh, you know, an Archie, an Archie serious drama, which I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that that exists. Well, I, given, given what I've heard from people who, who actually watch Riverdale, I'm not sure serious is the right word for it. 
But you know what I'm saying, though. I know we're what going, you're saying. We're going off the beaten path of, you know, I, I, I used to buy Archie comics and, you know, when I was a kid because they were always in, like, uh, thrift stores and antique like, stores. They the only ones still in thrift stores and whatnot. Yeah, they were, it was like five cents for comics from the early 60s because no one cared about them. I, I, I doubt people still really care about them. You know what I mean? So I, I used to read them. But that's where we're at now. Do you, do you see there being a burnout? publicly over all the superheroes in the mainstream or you th- think it'll just sort of continue in coast where it's been the past few years yes and no marvel has 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 been able to make things really work really well in regards to it because a lot of their movies uh uh aside from like some of the tent poles like, like iron man or the avengers uh have been uh not necessarily they're superhero movies but they also cross over into other genres for instance, uh, Winter Soldier is basically the man- is is the Manchurian Candidate. It's a political thriller, uh, civil war, uh, whilst while also being you know basically a superhero movie. Also, one that is also about political intrigue and moral decisions and stuff like that. Versus uh, you know a superhero origin story or just a superhero adventure kind of thing. Guardians of the Galaxy is a uh, uh, is a sci- is just a sci fi. You know, space fun adventure. Robin space adventure, yeah. uh, and Ant Man was a heist movie. They know how to basically superheroes itself is a genre, but they cross, but they're using it to cross over into other genres so that it's not just yet another superhero movie. So they figured out that formula where it's like, okay, we, we can have all these different TV shows, but a cloak and dagger show is going to be decidedly different than Agents of Shield, exactly. Or ha- or how? What is it? The one I saw, uh, Agent Carter. The one I, I I loved that show. And I was very disappointed to see that it was not renewed again. I can't believe no one picked that up or Netflix. Uh, anyway, uh, so they see them as okay. The genre first, superhero fitting into that genre secondary. And I guess you can get I guess you can get away with that for some of them. Probably is going to be harder with something like Spider Man though. Yeah. Uh, you know where it's like that's a superhero movie. Like, you know that's a big one. That's like. Superman is Superman. You know, Batman is pretty much Batman, even though you can have detective-style stories in there. And by the way, I'm hoping that the, the, the next Batman movie will actually be like a detective story. That would be fantastic. I know, they never really, they, they, they've always, they've always kind of, you know, that's the funny thing about a lot of these characters. There's this, jo- there's this joke that always goes around, of course, that Batman is a Mary Sue and Spider-Man's a bit of a Mary Sue because they have all these elements to their characters. When you actually break it down, Batman is superhero, detective, martial artist, uh, super genius, business, uh, playboy, you know, all these different mm-hmm. things. And the movies always tend to just, like, like, focus on, like, one aspect of their character, and they never seem to do a Batman detective story kind of thing. No, and, and this is going off on the, the Nolan trilogy now, um, but it's almost like I would, I would rather they have done a serialized version instead of trying to tell basically one huge complete story tying the first and third movies together, which I like that they did that, but... I would love to see a Batman standalone film that would just take down a crime syndicate. You know what I mean? So that's why when I talk to Frank about it, he's always like – he always said to me, why can't Batman be a regular TV show like the anime series? And I said, you know what? You're right. You have one one week – where it's him taking on a, 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 a crime syndicate. The next week, you have him doing a supernatural story like Man Bat, and then you know for sweeps, you have him take on you know an A an A an A list uh, you know villain like you know like like uh, like the Joker. Yeah, and you can have a crime family who's like hiring supervillains to try to fight you know Batman. Sure, absolutely. But the, the point is, is that Batman, in my opinion, would work better as a TV show. He's one of the I think the rare exceptions where. 
you don't need a huge amount of special effects to do a Batman TV show. Mm. You could do it like the Daredevil series, where it's more low-tech. Yeah, there's some involved, but, I mean, that's basically... Daredevil was, a, to me, a great example of what you could have done with a Batman TV show. You could have made it more street-level crime, but then every once in a while you throw in something supernatural or something that is out of nowhere. And maybe DC will get there eventually, but it, what turns me off from both the DC movie universe and the, and the TV shows is that they're not connected at all. And that really just bothers me to a level where it's almost it's almost irrational that I don't like that. Well, the TV shows are connected. I know they're I know not all of them take place in the same universe, but they at least acknowledge the others. They do crossovers with one another. I mean the movies. I mean the TV shows are, and the movies are totally different universes. That bothers me that you have movie versions and TV versions of not just the major characters but minor characters as well. Yeah, I mean we're gonna have we're gonna have two flashes uh, uh, pretty soon here at the very least. Sure. I don't know. I, I still I still haven't watched the TV shows, which is really sad considering considering <laughs> I've heard such great great things about them. Uh, and that lack, and again, it's that lack of vertical integration that's really a problem. I mean, am I being whiny about that? Do do I have? You know, I mean, it's like did, did Marvel? I guess they made they saw the foresight saying, well, we can never ever do a cloak and dagger movie, so we might as well do a crappy, or not crappy, but we'll do, the, the the B or C characters have a TV show because that's yeah. safer, right? You know what I mean? Like, and Spider Man shouldn't be a TV show, but he should be, you know, a, a movie guy because yeah, because they, see, pull it they off. see the movies as making more money than the TV show. But it's almost like nowadays, it's like that. Yeah, they tried to do a, a Flash show in the early '90s. It lasted one season, but now the special effects have caught up. Where you could do a Flash TV show over multiple years and get mm-hmm. away with it. It's almost like it's almost been a detriment. You know what I mean? It's almost like if, maybe if they figured this out five years ago, they would have stopped their direction beforehand, and they would have saw, okay, they would have looked at what Marvel was doing and said, okay, instead of having a Flash TV show, we have a Booster Gold TV show or something like that. You know, yeah. like, we'll just... <laughs> I don't know. I'm just rambling about it. What do you think about... Um, what do you think about... I know it's tragic news, but you have Zack Snyder stepping down uh, for post-production, and Joss Whedon stepping in to finish up Justice League. I don't know what to make of that. It's It's... it's... I mean, obviously, I've got to imagine that most of the movie has been done in, in uh, uh, Zack Snyder style, style, and he's got his own way of doing things, and, and WB is probably going to still oversee it, because I imagine they had at least some oversight over uh, uh, you know, Man of Steel and, ba- and Batman v Superman. So I don't know how much it's actually going to make a difference in how the final product is. Maybe some more you know, pop culture references, but that's it. Yeah, I think I think they're still doing reshoots. I mean, we're still like six months out from release, so you can still do reshoots then. Yeah. Uh, at that point, and but post production, you can nudge things here and there with someone else at the helm. You can change the edit a little bit. Uh, I just I just think it's interesting. Uh, it's obviously unfortunate personally, but uh, people wanted him off this project. Unfortunately, it happened this way. Yeah. Uh, for it to happen, I mean, I mean, um, I I respect the fact that Zack Snyder got a Watchmen film made, even though I was not satisfied with the final product. I respect the fact that he pushed to get that film made. Agreed. Um, and, and now I hear that they might be trying to do it like a like a full blown animated version. It's actually. You know, just like the comic book, and that that'll be fantastic because that motion comic, it's okay, it doesn't get the job done though, just doesn't get the job done. Yeah. So, so that's that's where we are with Watchmen. Even though I I hate the fact that now I guess they they're integrating the Watchmen universe with the regular DC universe universe, and that just makes my head hurt. I know. I I, I am in agreement that Watchmen should always be its own 
thing, and it should never do that. I, I am uh, adamantly against it. I did write, though, a long... When, when it first happened, when they first uh, did DCU Rebirth uh, number one, I made a long article basically talking about why I think they did it. Uh, it, uh, and it really does come down to the fact that Watchmen is is this highly recognizable, well critically acclaimed property that make, that continually makes the money, but it's only one thing. It's just... The graphic novel. It is just that, and as a result, they can't do. They can only do so much with just the one book. So this is the. So so eventually, something's got to give for them. So they realize we've we've got to do more with it. And instead of just trying to have a direct sequel, why don't we actually like you know start having integrations with the DCU? And while and, and I got to admit, while I'm against doing it, they have my attention because God. Damn it! Do they do they know how to to tease me with it? And I don't like it, but it's also like, where are they going with this? I don't see. I don't need to see a Batman flashback with Rorschach. I don't need to see that. I don't um, need to see that either. I would. I I don't want. I don't want to see it. I don't want it. But they have my attention. <laughs> did you read any of the before Watchmen comics? No, I did not. I was I was adamantly against those as well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that at some point a Patreon sponsor is going to make me review one of them. I don't doubt that they're probably well written. You've got a bunch of really ta- you got a bunch of really talented creators on them. Of course, they're going to try to do their damnedest to do it justice, but I don't feel it's necessary. And 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 Watchmen and and they, and DC has already been so disrespectful to Alan Moore already. So to to uh, so to try to keep milking the cow is 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 just like just just let it go. <laughs> I think that's a tragedy over over the Watchmen film. Like if they actually got Alan Moore involved, he would have said, "Okay, you're you're like eighty percent there, but the the last twenty percent is what makes Watchmen Watchmen." Uh, no, you don't understand. He would have said no altogether because because Alan Moore does not like having his his works made into movies, and he's especially angry about Watchmen. Oh, oh, sure. But what I'm saying is that's the one. Well, he said he never watched it, right? Well, I remember at the time he's like, "Yeah, I'm not going to even watch it. No, watch the movie. I don't know if he ever did." But I think that's the one where it would have probably got closest if he was involved with it. Even though you know he didn't want, you know, basically they would have cut out all the cool action scenes. You know, first and foremost, they would have not named them the fucking Watchmen. They were the they were the crime busters and the yeah. Minutemen. You know what I mean? Like the the little details that Zack Snyder unfortunately didn't get. I think he might have been able to nudge him. But that's a whole other conversation for another day. Yeah. So what do you got going on in your future besides weekly weekly comic book reviews until you're dead? What do you have going on? Well, every October, I of course do Long Box of the Damned, which is a daily video series where I where I do where I look at horror comics uh, uh, as a horror host type of character, and that's always fun. I'm going to be I'm going to continue working on the script for a Long Box movie, a proper horror movie. Uh, I just released uh, a new DVD, uh, which has uh, more original which has more original episodes and whatnot on it, uh, including the Nostalgia Critic review of the Atop the Fourth Wall movie. Oh, that'll be interesting. I don't think I've seen that. Indeed. <laughs> you haven't seen the, in the top of the fourth wall movie or the review? I don't think I've seen either. Well, you should see the movie, definitely. It's definitely in more in the... It's it's basically a light version of the anniversaries focused around my characters, but with but with, but with a few other Channel Awesome producers along for the ride and, you know, helping develop things. And the uh, uh, and the Sajgut review, no one's seen it because the DVD just came out and, and and it's on the way to people's houses who have ordered it. All right. Are you going to be at any conventions coming up soon this summer? Uh, yes, I am. I'm going to be at Anime Midwest. I can't remember the dates on that. I'm also going to be at Con Bravo in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, I will be at Geek.con, which is in Wisconsin. And 
Maybe I'll do Yomacon again. I do not know. Uh, it's always a crapshoot whether or not I do Yomacon almost up to the uh, up to the minute where they decide to do it. You know, it's a shame. We're, we're not going to cross paths this year, does it sound like. I know. It's it's always a shame. We, we can't race each other in uh, in the go-karts like like we did uh, prior years. I know. Too many games. That was awesome. You were, you were very competitive. I respect that. You were very uh, – you're, you're a competitor deep down. That's probably one of the reasons why you've had uh, the success you've had. You, you, you work <laughs> hard and you, you, know, you want to you get one up on someone else. I appreciate that. I try. <laughs> uh, otherwise, in terms of other projects, I think we got uh, – I'm going to try to finish uh, the Let's Play of Pokemon Omicron this year because that has gone on three years too long. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, well, the, th- the thing was, there was like an entire year where I didn't release any episodes of it, and I didn't do uh. a stream of it. Uh, and, and so I'm like, you know, I, I kind of want to start doing more gaming content on, on my channel, because you know, gaming is really big right now, especially if I can do it in a group of people, you know, riffing on some games as we play them. Uh, but I, I don't want to have this Let's Play just hanging over everything, so i got to get this thing done finally. Or, or else you just start going on Twitch and become a Let's comic book reader and have people read along with you. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> that in the was future. actually, you know, back, I recall that back when we filmed Kickassia, that was a thing I kind of wanted to do. I, wa- I wanted to try doing a Let's Read where, we, where, where, where I had one of two ideas. Either I would have a bunch of uh, uh, producers with me doing voices of, of the comics as we, as we went along with them, or we would... Or we would try to do a little skit where we would try to do a let's play of a comic book where like everyone like couldn't agree about how about the best approach to do it and never got off the ground. Well, un- until then, and until uh, I guess you, you would get a copyright claim over the content of the comic book. <laughs> I wish you the best, Lewis. Uh, you can find him online. Just search for Linkara or Top the Fourth Wall. His history of Power Rangers stuff is fantastic, which we didn't have a chance to even get into. And that, if you want to know anything about Power Rangers at all, it's like it's a tome. And a documentary at the same time, and, and, and he's very knowledgeable, and he's a great guy. Uh, Lewis, thanks for, thanks for being on with me. No problem. Thanks for having me, Pat. Thanks again to Lewis for speaking to me. You can check him out on YouTube and on Twitter at Linkara19. If you enjoyed the Not So Common podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can rate the podcast, leave a comment to help give it a boost, and feel free to spread the word via social media and let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support the Not So Common Podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.